Hello, everybody, and welcome back to... The Iron List. It's the podcast where we do lists here at the Critically Acclaimed Network. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. I write for The Rap. I write for Slash Film. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I contribute to Slash Film. I, too, am a critic. And uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of movies. Oh, so many movies. Uh, because how this podcast works is over at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network, every single one of our patrons, even $1 a month, they get to vote for what episode or what topic, rather, of the Iron List we're going to do every month. Whitney comes up with the top 10 list on that topic. I come up with the top 10 list on that topic. We do not discuss it in advance. I have no idea what's on Whitney's list. He has no idea what's on mine. The only thing that we agree on is that the topic was selected... By our patrons, and that topic this month is the best non-traditional Christmas movies. You might recall that our, I think it was our second ever episode of The Iron List, we did a list of our best Christmas movies ever. Yes. What we would pick. Uh, Looking back on that list now, there are things that would change, but it's pretty solid. They're all films I still recommend. Uh, But, Mm. and honestly, we picked a few weird ones in there too. Like We each picked like a couple of like not... It's a Wonderful Life, like oddball or culty yeah. or non or like action movie type things as well. Uh, so the goal here, I think, mm-hmm. is to go a little further outside the box and either pick very, very strange films or, and this is how I handled it, mm-hmm. <clears throat> at the very least films that are considered pretty obscure and don't usually make lists of the best Christmas movies ever or don't yeah. necessarily uh, show up on uh, uh, lists of the best Christmas movies. I, ever. I, I have a few of those that do show up on lists. Yeah, yeah. Because there are only so many Christmas movies that are worth talking about. Okay. Um, You're a harsh critic. Well, I was going to say, there's there's maybe um, just this month about 800,000 films on the Hallmark <laughs> Channel. Um, those could all vanish from history and not affect anybody. Wow. So uh, I think uh, keeping those off the list is all right. That's but, harsh, Whitney. That's harsh. Yeah. I will say this. So th- those aren't going to be making any kind of lists other than what's on a schedule somewhere. There is one made-for-TV movie uh-huh. that made my list. It is not a Hallmark movie. Mm-hmm. I resisted I that urge. restraint. All right. One Hallmark movie made my list of the best Christmas movies ever made. And I stand by it. It's called A Very Merry Mix-Up. I consider it to be the right. apex predator of that whole, <laughs> of that whole uh, yeah. uh, Hallmark TV genre. What's a... Uh... What's your take on just sort of Christmas movies in general? Because I know they're very important to yeah. a great number of people. Well, you know, uh, every holiday, uh, you know, the, the big ones anyway, I don't, even, I don't know how many people like go nuts for Arbor Day, but I guess some might. Um, the big holidays in any particular uh, uh, area, um, they're built on tradition. Mm. You know, you do the same thing every year. I was yeah. talking about this with my mom. Like, my parents used to go all out. For the holidays, they would really, you know, get a big tree. They would, we'd make the cookies. We would go see Santa. We would do all the big stuff. We did the same thing for Fourth of July. We would get all the fireworks, make it a big deal. Halloween, we put like a we we every year we'd make different tombstones to put in our front yard. Ooh, okay. So like we we really cared about holidays a lot. We loved holidays. It was a good time to be together with the family. It gave us projects to do together, uh, and it built up a lot of memories. So. That there are movies that are explicitly about the topic of that holiday, Hmm. which we go through every year. Um, It makes sense that there would be those that you revisit. Maybe not every year, but often. Yeah. Uh, So, I'm totally okay with that. I think it's, uh, in some respects, as far as, uh, you know, the, the film industry goes... 
you know, making a Christmas movie is a pretty good bet because there isn't always necessarily a good excuse to like watch the movie Chill Factor or something, but there's always an excuse every year to watch a Christmas movie. Yeah. You, you, and your film might be picked even if it's some low uh, budget uh, piece of schlock. Uh, Christmas is also a time with a lot of, uh, a lot of baggage. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have a lot of uh, big memories associated with Christmas. A lot of people have, look at this as a really sad time. It's the winter solstice. It's in like sort of the, this, uh, the, the whole world is in like a different, like sort of literal, like environmental state. Well, it's really cold. Everything's really the northern hemisphere is anyway. Not well, the, the northern whole, hemisphere, not sorry. the whole. You're right. I apologize. That was weird. <laughs> um, so you know, it's it's a it's an emotional time for a lot of people. It's a time with a lot of pageantry, mm-hmm. uh, and let's be honest here: Christmas, at, at least in in America, uh, drives the economy. At least several months out of the year. People are buying gifts for people. People are putting things on sale to drive up, uh, uh, you know, sales of their work. Uh, it's right before the end of the fiscal year, so people are trying to like add to that uh, uh, amount of money. So Christmas is huge, and it's kind of hard to avoid altogether. And I think eventually, if you make enough uh, movies, if you see enough movies, you'll see a movie that is at least incidentally involving Christmas in some way. Mm. Um, so anyway, there's a lot of Christmas movies I really, really love, and I watch them every year. Not every, not a lot that I watch every year. There's a couple that I watch every year. Um, but I think it's interesting. I think it's an interesting um, subheading yeah. of, uh, at the very least, you know, Western cinema. Mm. Uh, not the genre, but like the, the yeah. area of the world that we call the Western world. Um, so, um, so yeah, I think it's interesting. I think there's a lot to be said for playing into that. There's a lot to be said for subverting that. Uh, and I know you don't have uh, as much of an attachment. No, I, I don't. I don't have a, a, a classic. Yeah. There's a lot of Christmas movies I haven't seen. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't seen Holiday Inn. I haven't seen mm-hmm. Christmas in Connecticut. I haven't seen. I'm mad that you haven't seen Christmas. I, I, in That's I literally seen, my favorite Christmas. I, movie. I saw. I saw the uh, TV movie that Schwarzenegger directed. I saw that version of Christmas in Connecticut, <laughs> which isn't very. Um, I, I haven't seen dull. White Christmas. Uh, you know, there's a. That's um, a great movie. Yeah. Um, so people say. Um, I was letting you know. Yeah, there, there, there's no, no, nothing really drawing me into films about the season. And mm. I think uh, that there is just sort of a, a commercial element to it that gets under my skin a little well, bit. That's true um, for all cinema, of course. Uh, well, of course. But, you know, and when you're dealing with a commercial holiday like Christmas and mm. sort of foregrounding it, it, it just draw, drives me away. And I find yeah. that as, as the years pass, I feel less and less obliged to watch Christmas movies. Well, there used to be... I remember when I was growing up, uh-huh. there was this general sense... Like, the, the big complaint about Christmas in the mainstream mm. was that this holiday, which is supposed to be about generosity and mm. giving and religion, it's a religious holiday, mm. um, had gotten too commercial. Yeah. There's too much Christmas everywhere. People are that, making that too much money in, off of it. That was back in the 80s. That yeah. was a while ago. And, and yeah. before. But, like, the Charlie Brown Christmas special even talked about oh, it yeah, in, like, yeah. the 60s, early 60s. Um, by the 90s, people were mad that it wasn't commercial enough. Like, hey, uh, why isn't Starbucks putting Jesus on their Christmas cups and stuff like that? became like this whole thing. We need more commerciality out of Christmas or we're being disrespectful to Christmas. And I always thought that was weirdly ironic. Mm. Um, Because I'm not sure that's the point. But uh, the whole attitude around Christmas as an economic entity has shifted so hard within my own lifetime. That I see your point, mm. and I don't disagree. 
but that said, yeah. you know, I don't think but, that's Christmas's fault. I think that's no, what people think, have done to it. I, I think the best time to watch <laughs> Christmas movies mm-hmm. is you know, August, uh, mm. when when you're not in the holiday spirit. How do these things stand up as movies? Yeah, when you're not sort of in that. Can you enjoy them yeah, outside when, of the when you're season? Not, when you're not grading it on that sort of Christmas curve, as it were. And a lot of great Christmas movies didn't come out at Christmas time. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's, which is just kind of odd. And I think sometimes, like more recently, that's more uh, mercenary because the idea is they'll be on home video by Christmas and we right. can make that money. Um, but it's true. A lot of movies that were like we consider Christmas movies now were just incidentally about Christmas. Mm. Uh, and they weren't necessarily treated as this huge lucrative subgenre. It's just, hey, people celebrate Christmas, sometimes we'll make a movie about Christmas. Just like sometimes we make a movie about what happens at New Year's. Just yeah, like sometimes know, we make uh, a movie about what happens at an Easter parade, you know? Whenever Shane Black makes a movie. <clears throat> Pretty much, set at almost Christmas. every time. Um, yeah. Most of his movies are set at Christmas time. Yeah. And, uh, the Predator takes place at Halloween. Oh, does it? Yeah. I, I don't think I caught the date in that one. There's but... a little bit, there's, it's not a big deal, but there's a little bit where like the, the main character's kid goes trick-or-treating, uh-huh. but he's got the Predator mask. Like the one that, like, oh, okay, that, so yeah. he, like, he's wearing that, and then he accidentally, like, shoots up some kids with, like, that laser blaster. Oh. <laughs> it's dude. not very good, that movie. Oh, The Predator. Oh, yeah, The Predator. The yeah. Predator. Oh, sorry, is, I sorry. Was... Yeah, not, not the original. The original yes, I remember, ha- I remember. The original doesn't happen to take place on uh, October 31st. My so. favorite part of The Predator uh, was mm-hmm. during that that sequence, mm-hmm. the trick-or-treating sequence. Yeah. You would, there, a kid walked by wearing this, like, all red outfit, like, mm-hmm. he was dressed as a monster, mm-hmm. yeah. with big yellow eyes. Okay. And if you recognize that model, that was the original model for the Predator for the original movie. Oh no! Shit, before that's they funny. redesigned it to look the way the way it does, so that's like a really that. deep really cut. Um, that's really deep cut. Holy shit! Uh, that's the only good part about that movie because that movie's abysmal. <laughs> like that. Um, but yeah, uh, as the years have passed, um, a big discussion has sort of opened about Christmas movies to mm-hmm. the point where. I've heard people say every movie that you watch at Christmas time is a Christmas movie. It's like, well, because okay, just, now, well, then it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, now, 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 it, now you're just watching movies. The thing uh, about the thing about genre, so, as we define a genre, oh. is it can't be entirely subjective. Like a horror movie can't be defined as if it's scary, because mm-hmm. not everyone's scared of the same things. A genre is defined by we can agree on that there are these elements. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's an action movie. Are there action sequences? No. I don't think it's an action movie. Well, if if you look at sort of the base function of genre, yeah, uh, then uh, if you look at a comedy film, yeah, you're not going to ask, is it funny? Because that's that's a subjective measure. But yeah, lots, a, lots, a of, film, lots of comedies are not funny. A film that aims to be funny, however, exactly. is a comedy. Is it making whether, jokes? Wh- yeah. Whether or not it's successful is another, a different matter. And I think a exactly. movie that is trying to be scary, mm-hmm. uh, whether or not it actually is, is a, mm-hmm. could be considered a horror movie. Indeed. And any film that is trying to be treacly, I suppose, mm-hmm. would be could be considered a Christmas movie if it's set at Christmas well, time. I think it needs to be if it's set at Christmas time. Yeah. That's the bet that I think is extremely quantifiable because that's when we get into subgenre. Yeah, and with subgenre, it gets more specific. Mm-hmm. Like if you're talking about werewolf biker movies, there better be werewolves who are bikers. Yes, uh, and if you're doing a Christmas movie, Christmas should be involved somehow. It doesn't have to be the entire point of the movie. It doesn't have to be in every scene that takes place on December 25th. But by God, there'd better be some prominent Christmas stuff. Um, beyond that, uh, my criteria for my list is it either needs to be a <clears throat> a movie that is set around Christmas time in some way uh, that is decidedly not Christmassy. Uh, either be- on purpose or by chance. It just... 
doesn't fit what we consider the usual mold. Or it is a Christmas movie. It is very much a Christmas movie, but for whatever reason, it doesn't get seen enough. It's, it's considered relatively obscure. And that's subjective as well. You might know these movies really, really well. But no, I don't think everyone will. So I'm doing this as a recommendation. Did you have any other criteria if you're a non-traditional Christmas uh, list? No, mine were just um, <clears throat> films that were released outside of the Christmas season. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were released in the summer. Maybe they're part of like a diff- like a different genre that is only like s- tangentially connected to Christmas. Yeah. Uh, some of these you might have heard of. One of them is an actually incredibly famous movie. Okay. Um, but uh, that 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 was my only criterion. Yeah. And uh, and again, we did do our, our picks of the best Christmas movies ever. Uh, I went out of my way to make sure I didn't do any repeats, but I don't know if you did. I didn't uh, do any repeats. Okay. Yeah. So there you go. Uh, on that note, one last thing before we get started. Um, if you're new, we do our top ten lists a little differently than a lot of other podcasts. We don't bother with rankings. Our, the number nine film on our list is just as much recommended as the number 10 film or the number two film. We want you to see all of these movies. That's the whole point. The only difference is our number one film, the film that we save for last. That, that, that's the number one. That's the one. We have to like come we have to have some strong stance on something. So like if you if you held us held our feet to the fire, this is what we would say is the best non-traditional Christmas movie is what we'll end up with at the end of this list. On that note, uh, there's these episodes tend to run rather long, so let's not dilly dally. All right, Whitney. Yeah. Uh, what's the first film you want to talk uh, about? I, I want to I talk about sort of the biggest movie that one most people have probably seen, <clears throat> and that's Tim Burton's Batman Returns, ah, um, which I think made my list last time. I it might have. I think um, so. Yeah, but God, it's great. It, <laughs> I, I like Batman Returns. It's it's a Batman sequel. Batman was the biggest movie of all time at the time, I believe, mm. when it came out in 1989. Yeah, it was right up there. Um, yeah. Uh, and this was on Tim Tim Burton is a very strange phenomenon mm. to me because he's a, a hugely popular, really mm. well known to the mainstream director who has no right being up there. Uh, he makes he is, films based on German expressionist silent movies yeah. that make tons of money. How how, how did how, you like, do that? There's some some sort of weird alchemy, something about like the yeah. mid '80s that like, uh, uh, somebody like Tim Burton could become this hit maker. Uh, and yeah, he made a, a sequel to Batman called Batman Returns mm-hmm. in 1991. Um, Around there, yeah. And which he made at the same time, uh, he he wanted to do the Nightmare Before Christmas, but he had he was contracted to do Batman Returns, so he had to do yeah. that and let oh, Henry no, Selick do Nightmare yeah. Before Christmas. Excuse me, he did Edward Scissorhands in '91, then he did Batman after Batman Returns in '92. Um, anyway, and then Nightmare Before Christmas in '93. So it's yeah. like all these big hits. Yeah, uh, all and, very wintry. All very wintry, uh, and Batman was a big hit, and it's like, okay, Tim Burton, you did what you needed to do with Batman, you listened Mm. to all of our notes, you made this toyetic thing, um, kind of changed the way a lot of blockbuster films looked for the better Mm. part of a decade, Mm -hmm. and so we're we're gonna let you do a sequel, and do more of that. Yeah, Be more Tim Burton. Yeah. And he did. Yeah. And it is the weirdest blockbuster. (laughs) It's very, (laughs) very very strange. strange. And it didn't make as much money as the original, and they panicked, and that's why Batman Forever feels more like a Vegas... Like yeah, they, they, they made it a lot brighter and more more accessible. Yeah. Totally different went the director. Other yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, Batman Returns is bleak and it's, psychologically it, like it's it, creepy. Yeah. It's it's kind of kinky. Like there's a lot of sex kinky. stuff in it. Yeah. Uh, uh, the the Penguin who's played by Danny DeVito is like this gross guy who like drools black ooze and lives in yeah. a sewer. Yeah, uh, you know, Catwoman is not just some sort of like. 
like live cat burglar. She's like a, a mentally damaged secretary who was almost killed by her boss. He tried to kill her. She survived. Yeah. She went mad mm-hmm. and decided just sort of decided to become a, a violent vigilante cat lady. Yeah. 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 That's it. That's the movie. There's a scene where she breaks into a, a department store and uses her whip to whip the heads off of mannequins. Yeah. From what I understand, uh, Michelle Pfeiffer did that in one take. Yeah. Yeah. So, um... She's amazing. Everyone in the movie is really, really yeah. great. The, the, it's... Batman's weird. barely in it. It feels like he's not a big part of the movie. Well, people thought... After Jack Nicholson stole the whole... He stole everything in Gotham and he stole the movie. Um, in, the, in Tim Burton's first Batman. And then in Tim Burton's Batman Returns... The Penguin and the Catwoman were such powerfully interesting characters that Batman kind of sank into the background mm-hmm. again. And then in Batman Forever, it was Jim Carrey yeah. at his peak and Tommy Lee Jones ill-advisedly trying to keep up with him by overacting. <laughs> and then it, it just created this idea that Batman was the least interesting character mm-hmm. in the Batman universe. And really, if you want, even if you watch like the old Adam West show, that's kind of true. Yeah, um, he's, he's the square. But he represents I, the status quo. But what I like about Batman Returns in particular, and this is the reason why this is my favorite live-action Batman movie, uh, is that even though Bruce Wayne and Batman aren't necessarily the most interesting part of every scene, it's all about him. Mm-hmm. Because the whole movie, every single element of it is about duality. Yeah. It is about, and it's something that we've lost. And they lost talk about in, that, yeah. too. Yeah. And we've lost this in a lot of superhero movies, where people don't have Two secret identities. identities. yeah. The secret identity thing, a lot of times people would use it as like a plot device. Oh, I have to keep my secret identity. I have to mm-hmm. lie to Lois. The actual real world application of that is people have private things about themselves they don't want other people to know. Mm-hmm. And in Batman Returns, there's explicit reasons for all of that. Uh, Batman doesn't want people to know he's Batman because he's portrays to all the world like he's powerful and confident, but he's actually uh, very uh, fragile. And going through a lot of really deep personal problems. Mm. Catwoman, in her day-to-day life, has been very meek her whole life. And as Catwoman, she gets to be sexually powerful. She gets to uh, actually like act out on all of the violent urges she may have had, whether they're uh, directed in the right direction or, or not. And the Penguin starts out as a monster, and then develops a persona that uh, lets him become a public hero. And mm. people start looking at him as this heroic, tragic figure, and he even almost becomes mayor. The whole movie is about the premise of being a superhero or a supervillain. And all of that is great. And all of it's set at Christmas time for reasons. <laughs> and the movie came out in like June. It was yeah. a summer release. Um there's a tree lighting ceremony that gets interrupted and they try to do it a second time and it gets interrupted a second time. And, and more ghoulishly. And, yeah. Like a corpse yeah. in the tree. It's all, yeah, there's a lot of like snowiness. And I, I, I think Tim Burton did that. Like set this movie at Christmas time. Uh, it opens at Christmas time. Uh, yeah. The penguin, it starts with the penguin's birth. Mm-hmm. He, he's born, uh, they... And uh, they, his parents are cruel monsters, and they throw him in a box because yeah. he's malformed, and they don't like looking at him. And, yeah. Uh, they, so they put him in a box, and he kills a cat as an infant. They end up throwing him in a river. Yeah. Uh, and that's all set at Christmas time. Yeah. And there's like a Christmas tree in the background, and I mm-hmm. think it just highlights how little joy there is mm-hmm. in the world of Batman. 
Yeah, Gotham this, this City is, this is a very a, bleak. This is a place. monster movie. This yeah. is a horror movie. It's like this kinky horror noir. Mm. And the whole deal with film noir is that there's no heroes in film noir. Everything's no. just sort of bottomed out. Yeah, you're morality either, has disappeared. You're either evil, an anti-hero, or a victim. Yeah. That's it. Those are your options. And Tim Burton said, "Why don't I set a superhero movie mm-hmm. in a in a genre that has no heroes in it?" Yeah. Uh, and so you look at. Uh, Batman returns and you know he beats up villains, but oh. it, he kills them, he blows them up, blows them mur- up, murders, yeah. smiles about it too. Yeah. He's an asshole on this one. Yeah, so Batman has a code against killing. Really, I've seen him kill a lot of people. Yeah, I've seen Superman kill a lot of people too. It's one of those things where it's like they should have that, but every time I make a movie, it's weird mm. when you have it in comics and they don't kill ninety nine issues out of a thousand. Uh. The one time they do, it feels kind of like a weird exception. When you only have like three or four movies and one version of this character, and they kill in three of them, mm. that no longer feels like an exception to the rule. It feels <laughs> right. like that's the status quo. So, yeah, having Superman kill a couple of times feels like he kills a lot. Because there, <laughs> there aren't hundreds of other stories to compare those to mm. with that version of Superman. So, yeah, the, the Tim Burton, Joel Schumacher Batman was a homicidal maniac, basically. Yeah. But I'm okay with that in yeah, the world it, of Batman Returns, it which works is a dark, Returns. violent world. Yeah, uh, I, A lot of people know Batman Returns. It's, these superhero mm. movies are discussed at, at infinitum. But, yeah. uh, but this is one of the good ones. It's, it, it, it's a good one for Christmas time, especially if you're looking mm. something uh, a little bit a little off-center. Yeah. Uh, well, that's actually a good segue uh, to my first pick, which is a film noir. Okay. Uh, and an old-fashioned, proper film noir from like the 1940s. Uh, not neo noir. For me, the 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 crossover between noir and neo noir is neo noir is where you know you're making a noir, uh-huh. like you're doing it on purpose because you're familiar with the trappings of the genre. Noir was not designed to be a genre. It's just what movies about criminality and moral ambiguity kind of solidified into naturally over the course of a few decades. Mm. Uh, And then we look back at them and go, hey, all of these movies have a lot of things in common. They're kind of their own genre. But then once they said that, then we started making movies that were consciously trying to be noirs and they started getting a little bit more... I mean, sometimes they're great. Stylized, yeah. A little bit more stylized, sometimes a little arch and artificial. Uh, But yeah, the original wave uh, is really special. Uh, And there is a really interesting... uh, movie that doesn't get trotted out a lot uh it's not the best of its genre uh it is a philip marlowe movie okay uh and it stars and was directed by robert montgomery robert montgomery who's it's not a name that is like as familiar from the era as like humphrey bogart or Catherine hepburn but uh pretty big for the time he was an actor who also did some prominent directing uh, and he directed an, uh, a film called Lady in the Lake. Lady in the Lake. Lady in the Lake. Uh, he directed it, and he co-starred in it. And here's here's the okay. here's the novelty, because so, he I don't know this movie at all. He co-starred yeah. as the main character with you. Oh, is it like a first-person kind of the thing? The whole movie was filmed in first person, except for like an opening where Robert Montgomery explained the premise. Uh, but yeah. You, the audience, are Philip Marlowe. When you talk, (laughs) you're Robert Montgomery's voice. When we look in a mirror, you see Robert Montgomery. Mm. But every other time, boom, it's you as the camera. And people, like, you walk into a room and all of the murder suspects are going, 
what's he doing here? And you all feel really important. <laughs> and like when like the femme fatale is trying to seduce people, they're seducing you. Mm-hmm. Um, there, this is a wonderful uh, TV series like that called Likely Suspects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've been trying to do that on Cancel Too Soon for forever, but we can't find the find, whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, 1946, this was a real novelty. People had been trying to do this before. Uh, before Orson Welles did Citizen Kane, he was mm-hmm. he had other projects he was debating. Uh, there was one he wanted to do that was a political thriller. I think it was called Smiler with a Knife, okay. uh, which would which would have starred Lucille Ball, but the studio didn't think Lucille Ball was a star, <laughs> and pff, they were idiots. Uh, and uh, but like, there's another project he wanted to do, and it was too ambitious. He couldn't pull it off based on the technology they had at the time, which would have been like Lady in the Lake, fully first person, and it was going to be an adaptation of Joseph Conrad's Hearts of Darkness. Oh, interesting. Uh, and that was super fucking ambitious. And they just the script. You can the script's out there. It's fascinating, uh, but it's just it couldn't have been done. It was way too All ambitious. Right. But for a film, because the cameras alone were just gigantic. They weren't like handhelds that you could do now. They were these huge things. They had to have these blimps over them because they were so loud you couldn't record sound. They 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 weren't like. Uh, easy to, to move. It's one of the reasons why when the Panaglide or the Steadicam was invented in the 70s, it felt like such a game changer. Because mm-hmm. all of a sudden you can do moving cameras that feel smooth, actually like your yeah. vision feels. So, uh, But yeah, uh, a story about people talking in rooms about a murder mystery? You can totally do that one. That one makes sense. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's about uh, a woman who's an editor of a crime magazine. She hires Philip Marlowe, a.k.a. you. Mm-hmm. Uh, to find her boss's uh, wife, but of course there's a murder. Um, the gimmick is fun. The acting is quite good. It's gimmicky because they're playing to you. Yeah, it's like that scene in Fahrenheit 451. What do you think, Evelyn? Boop boop boop. <laughs> y- yes, I love it. <laughs> I agree with Evelyn. <laughs> there you go. Um, when when, the, when you hear the beeping sound, that's your line. Yeah. Uh, but uh, for me, the big star isn't Robert Montgomery, who's... He, I like Robert Montgomery, but I've never really been, like, taken with him as an actor. The big star is Audrey Totter. Audrey Totter. Mm-hmm. Audrey Totter, who played a lot of femme fatales. Uh, she didn't play the main character, but she was in Postman Always Rings Twice. It's probably their biggest, other biggest role. But she was in, like, the setup and a bunch of other things. Um, she plays... I think she plays uh, the woman who hires him. And she is really good at acting to the camera. <laughs> nice. It, it looks like... Cause sometimes it looks like you're playing like a Sega CD game where it's like full motion video and like Night Trap or something and everyone's kind of acting like crap. She's trying to seduce you and she's doing a very good job of it. When you accuse her of things, she looks genuinely horrified. It's just, it's such her movie. <laughs> it's really, really great. Um... I feel like I don't know if this has ever been consciously stated or not, but I feel like elements of this uh, were uh, adapted or uh, or in, into or inspired uh, "Kiss Kiss Bang Bang," which was on your list okay, last yeah. time, uh, which is a, which is a neo noir uh, set at Christmas. Uh, but yeah, the Christmas element is not the big deal here, but it is it is Christmassy. The whole thing takes place at Christmas time, uh, and it's a neat novelty. It works better than you'd think, even though it never really overcomes that. It never feels like it like sort of disappears into an organic story, but it's neat and people don't talk about it enough. And I think it's really, really cool. And I hope uh, more people give it a chance because it's a fun film mm-hmm. and it's, it's pretty cool. Lady in the, lady, lady in the lake, lady in the lake, not the lady, just lady in the lake, lady in the lake. Yeah. 1946. 
Holly. Totally worth checking out. Watch the trailer. It's fun. I it's do. like, you know, they're really, really selling it. Yeah. I, I guess I do have a, a neo-noir on mine as well. Okay. And, um, this is, this is, uh, there was a time you could have asked me and this would have been my favorite movie. Oh, really? And that time was like probably the, the back end of 1997. <laughs> uh, but this is Curtis Hansen's LA Confidential. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good pick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, that's that's it, one of the best movies of the '90s. Yeah, it, it is such a great screenplay. Oh yeah, um, it, it's about th- it, it's a bit fraught to watch right now because Kevin Spacey is one of the main characters. Yeah, it's uh, just not and, as much fun to watch. Yeah, him, it's it? like yeah. oh, Kevin Spacey, great actor. At the but, time, yeah, but he was yeah, huge. He was huge it was at the time. Weird that he was re- huge. really His hype wasn't a movie star. Yeah, and, and yeah. he was you know really widely celebrated. He was given Academy Awards. We didn't know about his extracurricular activities then. Yeah. Um, but uh, L.A. Confidential is a three-hander. It's about three cops in 1950s L.A. Mm. Uh, right after Mickey Cohen, the real-life gangster, yeah. had been put in jail. And then there was this power vacuum in the L.A. underground. Yeah. And they were trying to figure out who was taking over and trying to fulfill... Yeah, secretly take over all of the organized crime in L.A. Yeah, and there are three um, cops, and they're all, without realizing it, they're all kind of yeah. investigating the same crime yeah, and, wave. And they, they interact occasionally, but mostly they're in their own stories. Yeah. So we have, uh, the main character is Ed Exley, that's played by uh, Guy Pierce. Mm-hmm. He's sort of like the straight-laced one who's uncorruptible and is trying to like play everything by the book, which everybody hates. He was really and, unknown at the time, too. Oh, yeah, he, 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 that he was kind of like his, his big breakout in the U.S. Like he, he'd been in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, great movie, but that was more of a Terrence Stamp movie, and a Hugo Weaving movie. He yeah. was like the third guy. Here, it's like I remember watching. I'm like, this guy's gonna be great. Yeah, what a find! Holy shit, just a movie and, star performance. Yeah, and, and he's very good. Oh, I, I feel like they they tried to do to Guy Pierce what they do try to do with a lot of actors and make them into like genre stars. Yeah, remember the Colin Farrell debacle? Yeah, there was movies like SWAT. Then you have what was Guy Pierce doing in the Time Machine? Like, yeah, you know you don't it even. Was, movies he was like too that. interesting an actor for that. Yeah. Um, but he's really, really good at, in L.A. Confidential. Uh, secondly, another Australian actor, mm-hmm. we have uh, Russell Crowe mm-hmm. playing a character named Bud White. And he's the brute. He's yeah. the one who will just beat up a guy. It's like, oh, oh, I, I found a wife beater. Oh, yeah, what are you going to do? Go in and beat him up and just not arrest him. Yeah, just, just beat pu- the living pu- shit pum- out of him. Just pummel him yeah. and say, hey, yeah. leave this guy. Like, yeah. take care of the problem in front of me. And yeah, he's hired as muscle by somebody who might have some shady dealings. And the third character is the Kevin Spacey character, um, and he's like a consultant on a TV show. Yeah. So he's like the celebrity, uh, and like he also, the, the glitzy he, one. And he also, and because he works in Vice, he has arrested a lot of like movie stars for mm. doing things like smoking marijuana. Yeah. And like that will get him like in the the, the scandal sheets, mm. you know. And so, um, yeah, well, so he's, he's supporting character. Yeah, yeah. A supporting character is this uh, tabloid writer played by Danny DeVito, and he's friends with that that character. Yeah. And very, very gradually over the course of the movie, the, these three cops begin to realize they're kind of working on the same case. Yeah. Um, it sounds sort of, cliche when you put it like yeah. that, but it's really ornate. It's yeah, and like, fascinating. Like the, the way each of these cases uh, plays out is really kind of mm. organic and you don't mm. see how they're connected. Sometimes they reveal that they're connected and you don't really see the full connection until even a little bit later in the movie. Mm. Uh, beautifully, beautifully written film. Yeah. Uh, and. Christmas time. Yeah, yeah. It's surrounding um bloody Christmas. Yeah. There's an incident where uh Real life. the L- yeah, an actual incident where a bunch of LA cops, a bunch of white LA cops mm-hmm. uh went down into the prison. In the movie it's depicted as just for fun cuz they're kind of angry. Well, and, and go, there, and, there were a couple of cops who like 
had gotten in like a physical altercation off camera. Yeah. And apparently they were fine. They got a little bruised, mm-hmm. but the the the, the, the the other cops were drinking and the rumors started to fly yeah, about how like, badly they had. One guy was... is dying and another guy yeah. lost an eye. And yeah. so they're like, okay, well, we've got a couple of people who mm. are of the same yeah, they're... ethnicity as those yeah. who we have accused of this crime. So we're just going to basically kill them. We're just going to go, go yeah. down to the, the jail and the yeah. police station and beat them up for no good reason. Yeah. Real incident. Yeah. Uh, and the story stems from that. Yeah. Actually, I don't remember if they were even accused of that crime. But regardless, yeah, it's horrible. And so James Elroy, who is very into uh, Los Angeles history, if you've ever read his work, uh, has built a lot of his uh, stories around real-life crimes and then extrapolated fictional elements around them. He wrote The Black Dahlia as well, which, even though it was directed by Brian De Palma, sucks. (laughs) That's a really bad movie. That's a bad motion picture, that Here's how bad this is. You, You have, you know... A lot of big Hollywood actors, you know, like yeah. Scarlett Johansson and, 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 and uh, Adrian Brody. Uh, no, no, no. Or? It was uh, Josh. It was Aaron Eckhart and Josh Hartnett. Oh yeah, and yeah. Um, I think Hillary Swank was in that too. Uh, Hillary Swank was in it, yeah. and there's a and Hillary Swank I think plays like this, uh, like she's like a club owner of indeterminate sexuality, mm, and it yeah. becomes really clear when they have K.D. Lang oh, yeah. come out and sing like this big, that's, uh, that's part of the movie, this man. big musical number, and there's like. This yeah. wonderful ballroom lesbian celebration, yeah. And even with that, mm-hmm. it's a boring movie. It's, it's, it's like it's how, how do you how do you fuck that up? How did you do it, man? That's one of the most famous crimes in history. Mia Sarah <laughs> is good though. She's not in it a lot. She plays the murder victim. Or it's Mia Kirshner. I'm sorry, you're right, Mia Kirshner. Yeah. That's my bad. Uh, Mia Kirshner, really, really talented, and she yeah. did good in that. But um, yeah, uh, so not every James Elroy adaptation is uh, works, but. Uh, LA Confidential yeah they took this real life incident and spun it out and intertwined it with a few other things if you've ever read the novel you'll be amazed that the movie works at all there's so (laughs) much in it there's a whole subplot about this like fiction it's Disneyland but he didn't want to call it that he calls Mm -hmm. it like there's this uh, animator making a a theme park called Dream a Dreamland (laughs) and um, Ed Exley's father who is alive in the book Oh, he's dead? Like, it's a big point that he's dead in the movie. They they invented that for the movie, the whole Rolo Tomasi thing. That is entirely invented for the film. One of the best plot points of the 90s. (laughs) Totally invented for the movie. That's how great this adaptation is. He's working with this fake Disney... And they might be connected to a serial killer who was also cut out of the movie. There's so much <laughs> shit in that book that is very different mm-hmm. from what is in the movie. And the movie, I would argue, works better. Like, it's Just so fucking sure. amazing. Well, I know, like, the, the incident at the, the very end of the movie is actually how the book opened. I know the that shootout. They, yeah, it's, yeah. The, it's the first scene in the book. And it's different characters. Yeah. <laughs> it's totally so. different than everyone. But I love um, that movie. It's great. Um, it's excellent. It, it's brilliant, brilliantly acted, yeah. brilliantly filmed. The score is fantastic. Like it just I even have the soundtrack records like accentuate yeah. the positive and all kinds of yeah. wonderful 50s tunes. I, I used to think that the the ending was a little too kind of upbeat in a weird way, but I think <laughs> just, it works now. It's grown on me over time. It, it, I don't know. Why, I can't think of a better way to end it. Because a lot of people say like, oh, that should end when this character, I'll just say, raises their badge. People are like, it should yeah. just cut the credits. And I'm like, no, because half the fucking movie hasn't been explained. You need yeah. to. You need you to actually be, wrap things up a little bit. You would bit. be mad that shit hadn't been explained yeah. if it did end there. Yeah. It wouldn't yeah, work. Um, I was surprised when Guy Pierce wasn't up for an Academy Award because this is a no. big Oscar darling. It was up for Best Picture. It yeah. lost to Titanic. So you know, the, no, the only uh, actor who was nominated was Kim Basinger. Kim Basinger who won? She won. Yeah, she's good in it. You know, 
Because it doesn't look a thing like but, Veronica but Lake. Three, I don't care what the movie says. Three, no, the hair do. That's all the thing. It is, but it's still, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the uh, Anyway, but yeah, L.A. Confidential, great pick. Um, I don't have another film noir, but I do have another crime-related movie. Okay. Uh, and it's a movie that, it's quite old. It's directed by Michael Curtiz. Who is one of the great genre filmmakers? He did Casablanca and The Adventures of Robin Hood, uh, and it's got an incredible cast. It stars Humphrey Bogart. It stars Peter Ustinov. It stars uh, Ar- uh, Aldo Ray. It stars Basil Rathbone, Leo G. Carroll. What an amazing cast! And I was really surprised when people don't talk about We're No Angels. Oh yeah. Uh, Weird No Angels was... I've, I've seen the remake. Yeah, there's a very loose remake uh, directed by Neil Jordan uh, starring Robert De Niro and Sean Penn that came out in the 80s. I think David Mamet wrote the screenplay for that, actually. Uh, it's not as good. The The ending is quite clever. I'll give it... A, there's, a, there's a joke at the end that just make they, I still think about it makes me laugh at that remake. That isn't on the original movie. But um, Weird No Angels stars Humphrey Bogart, Peter Ustinoff, and Aldo Ray as hardened criminals and they're in the Caribbean and they've escaped from prison and they're trying to figure out how to get off of this island secretly and what they end up doing is uh, going to like this like store that's kind of going out of business and offering almost like a Three Stooges routine uh, to like fix their roof mm. and this gives them an opportunity to like you know, get up on the roof oversee the area Maybe make a couple of dollars, you know, like, yeah, like basically just, it gives them an excuse. But as they're on the roof, they keep overhearing what the family who runs this place is going through and they are being like abused by their investors. Their whole, this place is their whole dream. Uh, You know, their, their, their daughters uh, all wrapped up and in love with a guy who may be a cad and in spite of themselves, because they're they're all assholes. <laughs> in spite of themselves, they keep just going slightly out of their way, only slightly out of their way, to help out, to okay. actually be useful. To like, okay, well, you know what? They 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 let us stay here over the night. We should do a nice mm. thing. Um, and at first, it's like, oh, this is gonna be a sweet thing where they're bad guys, but they turn into good guys. And oh, this is this is cute. I like this. The movie culminates, and I don't want to go into a lot of detail, mm. where they realize that if they really want to help this family, they have to commit murder. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the thing. The, even though this was made during the production code, this is 1956, uh, the movie agrees with them. <laughs> the movie's like, no, God wants these people dead. <laughs> The idea that these guys might be like guardian angels in a way is supported by the film and they commit murders. <laughs> it's weirdly light and dark at the same time. It's 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 not quite a black comedy because it's only a small part of it, but it is weirdly malevolent for how absolutely cute and Christmassy it is. Because <laughs> it's a Christmas miracle that all of these deaths are occurring. I love it. It's really, really fun. Uh, there's uh, uh, Peter Ustinov plays a character who's, I think I think it's Peter Ustinov. One of them plays a character uh, who's kind of a creep and is like a kind of leery. Mm. And that brings it down a little bit because the movie thinks that's funnier than it is. Uh, so be be wary of that. Like there, that, there's that element that you're going to go, okay, that's not really that great. But the rest of the movie, very, very charming. Uh, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm surprised it doesn't get trotted out more at Christmas time. It's a, it's a neat film. 
Maybe it's malevolence, has it? Maybe. It's, it's, they're, not, they're... it's not evil. It just feels more like an Ealing comedy, you yeah, know, where there's, I... there's a little bit more joy in the criminality. On my uh, on my last Christmas list, yeah. I, I mentioned Bad Santa. And there's a, a, yeah. s- a very, very short list of films that are set at Christmas time, that are about Christmas time, <clears throat> and are incredibly bitter about Christmas time. Yeah. Uh, most of them tend to be about warmth and togetherness. That's kind of mm-hmm. the point of these movies. Yeah. I feel like Bad Santa, although it has a bit of a streak, it is unbearably cynical. Oh, it's yeah. made by uh, Terry Zweigoff, who is an unbearably cynical person. Yeah. Uh, so... I appreciate when one of those can come along because they seem to be pretty rare. Yeah. Uh, What's your next pick? Uh, I have another one that's it's not really a crime movie, but it's it's shot in a very gritty fashion. Okay. Uh, in fact, it was shot on phones. Um, oh, okay. I, I'm talking about Sean Baker's Tangerine from 2015. You haven't seen Tangerine? I hear it's amazing. It's never gotten um, to it. Yeah, uh, this this was sort of like a, a a bit of a boon when it came out because it was shot on iPhones. The whole movie was shot on three iPhones, and it yeah. you know just sort of proved that digital cameras. Uh, people talk a lot about how you know film can't be art until it's truly de- democratized. Yeah. Anybody, if, if camera, I forgot who said it, but as soon as cameras are as common as paper and pen, then yeah. then we can consider film art. Well, you know what? We can now. Yeah. Because everybody has a camera in their pocket, and they can make a movie if they want to, right now. Yeah. They just take out your phone and start shooting. Could be done. Uh, and yes, Sean Baker wanted that sort of raw digital look. And uh, it's about a pair of sex workers mm. in uh, Hollywood, trans sex mm. workers, who um, the opening scene starts in that one donut shop on Santa Monica Boulevard in Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> that changed hands, didn't it? it now it's Trejo's Coffee. Yeah. It used to be, uh, I forgot what it was called before then, but yeah, it was yeah. Like just some sort of independently run donut It was shop. an institution. Everyone knew it. Even yeah. though, ironically, I can't remember the name either. Yeah. <laughs> you just remember the donut, Dan. You remember the donut. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the, the plot is about how uh, one of the one of the characters, um, she she just got out of prison, mm. I think for sex work. Mm. And like she spent like a month in prison and now, now she's uh, out and has ha- found that her boyfriend, mm. who's also her pimp, uh, is might be cheating on her, and so the movie is about like trying to catch this guy, mm. but it also kind of wanders around these other supporting characters and what's kind of going on in their lives. Mm. There's this uh, one cab driver who is like a regular of some of the sex workers, uh, and here's the thing: Sean Baker is really wonderful mm. about looking at these characters and s- giving them a completely humane eye. There's nothing tawdry about this movie. Uh, there's a lot of sex talk. There's a lot of nudity. There's a lot of you know sex worker talk. But it's not made to be the least bit sensational. This is not some kind of lurid, true crime, seedy underbelly kind of a movie. This is actually a very humane picture. And what Sean Baker does uh, is... Th- this, is gonna, this is the grungiest L.A. movie I've ever seen. <laughs> That's saying something. You see movies shot in L.A., and there's a lot of movies about L.A. There's a lot of movies about the seedy versions of L.A., but there's always a bit of glamour to it, because Hollywood is here. Yeah. You know, L.A. Confidential. It's all glamorous. Yeah. It's about crime and death and murder and, and, and betrayal and all the rest, but it has a bit of a sheen. People who live in L.A. 
know what Santa Monica Boulevard looks like when you get a, <laughs> like like in that strip mall right next to Hollywood Forever. Yeah, right, all, yeah, all of the glitz over. is carefully chosen angles. Yeah, because <laughs> like, oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, yeah. T- look slightly to the left; it's disgusting. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of like really disgusting parts of LA. And it's rare that those parts of L.A. make their way into camera. Yeah. Sean Baker just took out a camera as like, here's Santa Monica Boulevard near Vine. Here's like where you're driving up Highland, but you take a, you, you actually take a, a left, like a block short of Melrose. Uh, you know, it's like some of these areas of L.A. that aren't that pretty takes place in that area. And... As an L.A. native, I can really appreciate that, that it's actually getting into a little bit more local color and detail. Mm. And wouldn't you know it, the entire film takes place on Christmas Eve. Mm. Uh, So there's a lot of Christmas images around, but it's actually kind of highlights just how much the Christmas season really is just tchotchkes that get in your way. Yeah. It's like just things that people hang on donut shop doors. That's what Christmas is to some people. Yeah. It's like, well, but at the end, can we just like maybe sit, be calm for a moment, actually celebrate Christmas? Well, we don't really celebrate Christmas, but we can have a moment of calm. And that's what it means here. Tangerine is really great. I need to see this movie. Um, I don't have a great segue, other than the the movie I'm about to recommend is very independent. All right. Uh, and indeed, it's actually really hard to find, and it's one of those times where I got into a, a bit of a debate with a fellow critic once um, about when you do, like, top ten lists. Whether or not it's fair to put movies on your list that are really hard to find. Because uh-huh. their 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 philosophy was we're recommending people can go see these movies right now. So if not readily available on streaming, at least in print on on DVD. Uh, and I would argue that as frustrating as it can be to have a movie recommended to you that you can't see right away, mm. um, you don't know to look for it otherwise because yeah. it's not available. Uh, there's this weird uh, uh, sort of. We like to think that demand creates uh, uh, supply, but supply also creates demand. What you have access to is what you know. So if a movie isn't available and you don't know to look for it, it might as well not exist. Yeah. So I'm going to recommend a movie to you that occasionally pops up online. Like I found like there's a, there, it's on YouTube right now, but it's in Italian. <laughs> but I have seen it on YouTube in English. It does pop up once in a All while. Right. Uh, it is a 1987 dark comedy uh, that went straight to video and I think might have even been shot on video called Night Visitors. Night Visitors. There's a lot of movie with, movies with a similar title The Night Visitor or Night Visitors. This one's from 1987. It's directed by David Falk. It doesn't star anyone. <laughs> like, there's no like one get where you're like Aww. oh it's blah blah. But it was advertised as a wacky comedy. It's way too dark for that. Some people have, have talked about it as a horror movie. It's way too mm. wacky for that. Uh, this is one of those movies where it is very, very difficult to recommend uh, unless you can absolutely accurately nail what people are going to expect. Because if you're expecting a wacky comedy, you're not going to like it. If you're expecting a horror movie, you're not going to like it. Expect a Paul Bartel movie. Okay, I was about to say. <laughs> that's that's the trick. Is it a Paul Bartel movie? It, no, All right. but it feels like a Paul Bartel All movie. Right. Paul Bartel is a character actor and filmmaker who made a lot of movies, not as many as he should have, unfortunately, but uh, uh, all the movies he made 
have this very particular vibe that I, I really not a lot of other filmmakers are able to consistently grab mm. where they feel lo-fi but also very particular they are lo-fi lo high concept character and premise driven and yeah. with a whimsical interest in the macabre yeah that's a very particular vibe <laughs> And I love Paul, Paul, oh, Paul Bartel. I, I brilliant filmmaker. just recently got the Criterion edition of Eating Raul. Oh, cool. Uh, so, Night Visitors, if you're expecting like a Paul Bartel movie, you're going to enjoy Night Visitors. Okay. Uh, Night Visitors uh, takes place in uh, the suburban home of a very uptight conservative family. They're not evil or anything. They're just really up their own butts. Uh, <laughs> they, they don't like any sort of it, it, someone says any swear word there's this whole like <gasps> what kind of thing like they're just everything has to be aggressively wholesome aggressively familiar nothing new nothing interesting can penetrate their bubble when there's a knock at the door and a group of people uh basically they're, they they say they're carolers and their their car broke down and they just need to use the phone and they settle in for the night, and they fuck with everybody. <laughs> it's like funny games, but l slightly less bleak. And also, about like nine years before funny games came out, I am convinced somehow Michael Haneke saw this movie. <laughs> I, I have no way of proving that, but I would not be shocked. Because they have a lot of similarities. I'm always surprised when really like iconoclastic filmmakers... Mm have uh like a, a really intense interest in some sort of like really mainstream kind of picture yeah it's like when david lynch says oh yes i love stagecoach really really you, you love stagecoach what do you what do you get out of stagecoach like, like, don't you mean like maya darren or or, yeah. or you know the orphic trilogy something like that no yeah. all right again i heard and, from, uh, a, from a reputable source that ingmar bergman loved the blues brothers loved it i, I would love yeah more than just if if I if I could either watch the Blues Brothers uh -huh. with Ingmar Bergman or have like a two hour lunch with Ingmar Bergman, yeah, I mean that's a tough choice. Yeah, I know, right? Um, but uh, anyway, so these these people they come into the house and it's it's just like funny games. They're like sort of imposing upon their generosity the accepted social contract of we well, can't kick anyone out on Christmas. Well, of course we're waiting for the tow truck to come, so if we're about to eat Christmas dinner. Of course you can join us for Christmas dinner. Even though you're obviously lying about everything that you're doing. Even though that you're being weirdly, like, physically aggressive with everybody. And uh, uh, uncomfortably sexual with our, like, virgin son. Uh, <laughs> and over time, it gets worse and it gets heavier. And people end up being, like, locked in the basement. And you realize that the uh, almost cult-like leader of this weird group... What he wants is for someone in this family, he doesn't even care who, someone in this family to break the seal of propriety and push them far enough that they'll kill him. <laughs> That's I, I what like, he wants. I like our choices here. These are yeah, good. This is a weird fucking movie. This is a very interesting movie. It's funny without being ha-ha funny. Like, you're not going to get a lot of belly laughs, but there's mm. a lot of, like, uncomfortable humor. Sardonic humor. Very yeah. sardonic humor. Very arch. It feels like a play in a lot of ways. Um, but yeah, if, if, if this sounds at all like your jam, 
seek it out give it a shot it is it was barely released it has only like a couple of extremely negative reviews on Letterboxd. <laughs> like it's got, I don't, I don't even know if it has any reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. Like maybe one or two. Like it's vanished. But if you can if you can find it, it is worth it. It is strange, and it is absolutely of deserving. Like some some vinegar syndrome or someone, please find this movie and put it out. It's so neat. It's so weird. It, it just deserves more people to see it. Uh, what's your next pick? Uh, my next pick. Uh, let's see. I, I, sadly, I don't have anything that weird. Um, That's okay. Oh, actually, I do have something that weird. I think we've talked about this movie before. Okay. Uh, this is one of those um, sort of really kooky, on-the-edge uh, Christmas classics that uh, uh, fans of cult cinema know. Okay. Uh, and I'm talking about elves. Oh, um, that made my list, too. It did it? Yeah. Oh, all right. Elves is great. Yeah, elves is elves is nuts. All right, so first of all, it's called Elves. There is an elf in it. Only one elf the entire movie. Not like one at the beginning and then it dies and another one. No, only ever one elf. Fucking hell. And um, an alcoholic department store Santa, mm-hmm. played by Dan Haggerty, better yeah. known as Grizzly Adams. Yeah. Uh, who used to be a cop, but he was like disgraced, and so now yeah, he's a department store. Disgraced Santa. cop. Um, Dan Haggerty looks like he's drunk in this movie. Like oh yeah, he's just like half asleep, barely making his way through this this plot. There's a scene in this movie where he's like on his lunch break, and it's just him and a carton of cigarettes, mm. and you just get the impression that's his that's plan his... <laughs> for the day. <laughs> And he's got nowhere to stay. He's like, hey, can I just sort of crash here in the department store? And, yeah, and like and the, you get like this the janitor's really, room. You get this really sad sad feeling that you're, we're watching just Dan Haggerty documentary footage. Dan like, Haggerty shouldn't be making this movie. No, he should this not. This is such a cheap, like, terrible movie. He deserves better than this. Everyone deserves better yeah. than this. But he's not uh, the protagonist. No, um, the protagonist is a teenage girl. Let me look up the actress's name. Yeah. Um, uh, her name is Deanna Lund. Yeah. She, or no, Deanna Lind is the mom. Uh, Julie Austin is the, the teenager. Okay. Um, and she and her friends hate Christmas. Yeah. And uh, at the beginning of the movie, they go out to the woods and do this pagan anti-Christmas ritual. Mm-hmm. Like, we hate Christmas. Fuck Christmas. And they do their ritual on the grounds that just happen to be yeah. where a demonic Nazi ritual yes. took place decades before. Mm-hmm. Involving elves. Involving a, a Nazi elf that was buried there, and they accidentally mm-hmm. resurrect a Nazi elf. And this Nazi elf has been raised for Christmas, and it wants to, like, it wants, repopulate it the wants world to, with Nazis. Yeah, it wants to breed and spread its genetic material. Yeah. And it turns out that the girl's grandfather knew all about this, and uh-huh. was like... Don't reveal all the plot points here, because some of them are so well, yeah, they okay. deserve to be saved. And other things as well. Yeah. <laughs> the the plot is wild. Yes. It's unbelievably inappropriate. There's all this really disgusting sex humor in this movie. Her mother, the protagonist's mother, is weirdly abusive. In like very like, like closed overt, fist hitting kind of way. Like yeah. like it's like straight out of mommy dearest. Like it's really just like mm. what is what what are you doing? Mm. And mommy dearest was real. This is like obviously mm. a, a movie, but like still it's like and it turns out there's a justification for it. Like, it doesn't actually justify but there's a reason. <clears throat> Holy shit, is that a plot point? Uh, 
everything about this movie is nuts. The elf costume looks oh, it's, terrible. Uh, well, it's not a costume, first of all. No. Um, it, it, it's... I don't. It's not even a puppet. It's just a thing on a stick. It's like a head it, on a stick. It doesn't. It has no articulation. I think the eyes were supposed to move a little bit, but they don't a lot. The mouth yeah. is just frozen in an open position. It looks like a. It looks like a semi-expensive Halloween mask, mm. but like expensive for like Spirit Halloween. Yeah, like you spend fifty bucks on this, so it, it looks yeah, pretty so good. It looks a, really rubbery. I, there's, in a there's party, no, but in a movie, it looks like shit. And and we only ever see it's like its head and its shoulders. And there's a few shots of its feet. So they have some yeah. rubber feet that they have on sticks that they're yeah. kind of walking around. We never see a full body shot of the elf. No. I don't want to. No. Not in this one. It, and because its mouth is always open, like, and it's kind of rubbery, it, I mean, I gotta say, it looks like a sex doll. It's just, it looks terrible. <laughs> it looks really terrible. Let me tell you how cheap this movie is. This is this is a great indicator. There's a scene early in the movie where Dan Haggerty goes to mm. uh, the department store to get his job, and uh, Julie Austin already works there. Yeah. Um, he walks into the store, and it's Christmas time. Christmas Christmas horror movie, uh, and there's like a, a band like outside, you know, like a guy with a tuba and a guy mm. with a bugle, and they're playing Christmas music, you know, and you you you've seen like Main Street at Christmas in movies if you've never seen it in real life. Um, the audio for them because they clearly didn't play on the day, or if they did, they they weren't getting live audio at, at the mm. time. Casio. Yeah. <laughs> they couldn't even find people who had real instruments. Like, it was just like, it looks like it just came out of a cheap Casio synth. Like, it just, there's no connection to reality at all. And if this movie was self aware, it might think that was funny. It's weirdly intense. Yeah. Like, it's, they, someone really thought they were doing something here. This is another one that desperately needs a proper good release. It's easier to find The Night uh -huh. Visitor. You can find this online. Uh, but, um, yeah, this needs, someone needs to clean this fucking thing up. Like, this, this, this needs to at least have a Troll 2 audience. I, I, I think... It's so fascinating. Doesn't Elves have a Blu-ray? I don't think it does. I mean, if it does, it's relative, it's relatively new, because I missed it. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, Elves is absolutely bonkers. Um, uh, you can find an eBay, like, on, or on, yeah. on eBay, you can find, like, a, a like, a DVD. Yeah. On the second-hand market, but, yeah. Yeah, I'm not, but I'm not sure how good that is, or even if it's, like, official... Um, so yeah, that's definitely a, a, a worth tracking down. Uh, I also have a horror, uh, well, this is more of an intentional horror comedy, I, I, to be fair, but, uh, it's very culty and for some reason it never found its audience and it bumps me out actually, cause it's actually a very funny movie. Uh, it stars, uh, Bill Goldberg, the wrestler mm. as Santa, but in this universe, Santa Claus wasn't nice because he was nice. He's nice because he's the Antichrist and he was tricked into being good for like a thousand years. And this year, time's up. And he finally gets to stop being sad. He's still wearing the outfit. Still got the reindeer. But this year, he's going to come to town and he's going to fuck you up. It opens with him, like, a, a big angry Christmas dinner where, like, the patriarch and matriarch are James Caan and Fran Drescher. Hi. And he just jumps in and he kills everybody. And then there's this guy, he lives in a small town and he can't tell this girl he's got a crush on her. And they end up being, like, the focus of this giant wrestler Santa 
who just wants to kill and drink and be an asshole. <laughs> the, 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 the flashback sequence is done in like Rankin Bass stop motion. It's really fun. Like it's got a good sense of humor. Uh, the cast is knows exactly the movie they're making. It's not as cheap as you might think. Mm. Like this feels like the kind of thing where they'd be like, "This is made like so cheap, it kind of undermines it." No, they, they had some money, and it just it, it just eked out into the world, and nobody saw it. Nobody gave a shit, and it's actually very funny, <laughs> and I have a really good time with it, and it bums me out. That this is just one of those ones where I'm legitimately surprised more people haven't seen this. Hmm. It's like, it, it it's not that obscure. I'm trying to remember, I feel like there's someone in it else who's actually, because it's got James Conn, it's got Fran Drescher. That's pretty good. It's got Emily DeRaven from uh, Lost. Uh, it's got Robert Culp as okay. the grandpa who knows everything uh, uh, going on. It's got Saul Rubinek. Oh, I love Saul Rubinek. It's got Rebecca Gayhart. Like, it's it's got a cast. It's weird. It's just weird that this never uh, uh, went anywhere. I'm not sure I don't remember if the director did anything else. It was written and directed by David Steinman. Uh, oh, this is the only movie he ever directed. <laughs> only movie. That sucks. Uh, he was the assistant to Brett Ratner on Red Dragon, Rush Hour 2, and The Family Man. Jeez. Wow. That, well, that's that's a pedigree that's right rough. there. Yeah, but he, and before that, he was a production assistant on Cast Away, What Lies Beneath, and Inspector Gadget. <laughs> Weird career, just to so, jump into. So he's like, getting you know work and yeah, not, not lately. Hollywood mainstream it doesn't, but yeah. doesn't have a lot really of other credits work, since. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, but yeah. Anyway, uh, Santa Slate, fun film, totally mm. worth checking out, and kind of obscure, and yeah, worth it. I think I've seen that on like store shelves, but I never yeah. actually rented it. I think that's probably what most people most people <laughs> look at the title because it's spelled Santa Slay S L A Y, and they're probably thinking that's gonna suck. Yeah. That's gotta suck. I mean, come on. It's got Bill Goldberg as Santa. How could that possibly be a good movie? Uh, if it's well-written and funny. That's why. Yeah. 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 All right, what you got next? Um, okay, I have a Christmas movie that's not a Christmas movie. What? They try to trick you into thinking it's a Christmas movie. Mm. Uh, because it is called Silent Night, Deadly Night 4. <laughs> I knew you were going to do this, actually. <laughs> I knew this was going to make your list. Initiation. Silent Night, Deadly Night 4, Initiation. Directed by Brian Usna. Yay! Now, everybody knows Silent Night, Deadly Night. Yeah, it's very notorious. Yeah. They they tried to do like the psycho treatment uh, to a yeah. slasher movie about a guy who grows up and he's traumatized and by so tra- yeah traumatized by, the place, Christmas by Christmas and Santa so he ends up having to wear a Santa suit at a toy store and yeah. that makes him snap and he starts killing people. Yeah, it's actually. Kind of good. I like that movie. It made my list of the best Christmas movies ever last time. I think it's a it's a lo-fi slasher, but at least it's got a point. It's actually pretty cogent. There's some good kills in it. It works. It's pretty absurd. Uh, I'm not saying it's not absurd. I just I know I know a lot of critics hated it because they thought it was like doing something completely profane. Like Siskel and Ebert Ebert really hated it because they thought you don't do that to Santa. Uh, On their show, and people uh, always say like, "Oh, Siskel and Ebert were always so like well behaved." Like. On their show, they read the names of the people who made the movie, and after each one said, shame, <laughs> shame, and I'm like, they, they really dude, hated that movie. Like, holy um, shit, but also, come on. And then uh, then there was Silent Night, Deadly Night 2, which... Uh, it's more mostly fo- a clip show. It's, yeah, half of it is just footage from the first movie. It's so uh, bad. And that's, that's one of the worst fucking movies. Uh, it stars a guy named Eric Freeman. I was in a documentary about Eric Freeman that was yeah. never made, so I was interviewed for a documentary. Oh, that ever came out? 
I don't think it ever it's did. Okay. I think maybe pieces of it came out. Because like the whole thing feature. is, he, he was in this like cult movie, and he's like this clip he was in Garbage, Garbage Day, Day. Yeah, went viral online, one, yeah. and uh, then nobody knew where the fuck he was. Yeah, <laughs> couldn't find him. That was the part of the well, And they asked, like, well, what, 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 what does Eric Freeman do <coughs> now? And my response was, whatever Eric Freeman wants. He's, yeah. He has no obligation to fulfill, like, this weird niche that you've put him in. Yeah, he doesn't have to capitalize this, uh, on this. He doesn't have to do, like, mm-hmm. horror festivals or anything like that. Yeah. He's happy, whatever he's doing. Then there was Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, Better Watch Out, mm. where uh, the Eric Freeman character was recast by Bill Mosley. Yes. Uh, that's an early role for a Laura Herring, uh, Laura Lena Herring. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't. It was directed by someone pretty big. It's directed too. by Monty Hellman. Monty Hellman uh, directed that. The guy who did the Tulane Blacktop did that fucking movie. Yeah. What and, the uh, it, shit? If you look up sort of the the production schedule and what Monty Hellman was up to, the existence of Reservoir Dogs, mm-hmm. like it owes its existence to Silent Night Deadly Night yeah, Three. That was his sellout movie, so he could produce stuff like Reservoir yeah, he, Dogs. Yeah, he had to do a sellout movie so he could do something like Reservoir Dogs, and the, the, that's kind of where that, that. Yeah. The only reason that movie is notable. Uh, and then we got to Silent Night, Deadly Night 4. Mm. Nobody cares anymore. It's 1990. <laughs> Fuck it. Uh, and you, wouldn't you know it, it's not even a Christmas movie. It's about a, a cop. Or no, it's a, a reporter, excuse me. Yeah. She's investigating a cult of witches who worship Lilith. Okay. And it just happens to be set in December. Uh, you know, you got a 1 in 12 chance of being set in December. <laughs> <laughs> 1 in 12 chance and of being a Christmas movie. Here's the thing. This one's directed by Brian Usna. Yeah. The director of Society. Yeah, and Bride of Reanimator. Bride of Reanimator. So he knows his schlock. And Screaming Mad George does the special effects. Uh, So you know you're in for a treat. treat. Screaming Mad George did the effects for Society. He also did the effects for Freaked. Uh, We've reviewed a movie he did called uh, Faust, Love of the Damned, based on a comic book. Mm -hmm. Um, He did The Giver, the live action, which is not a great movie, but the monsters are incredible. Yeah, and, and... this cult of Lilith in Silent Night, Deadly Night 4 worships like vermin, mm. like cockroaches and snakes. Yeah. So there's a, a scene, and it's one of the most terrifying shots in any horror movie, and I'm not kidding. Wow. Where um, she's just going through like a regular apartment building, and Screaming Mad George did this really interesting thing where uh, there's like textures on the walls and mm. like stains where like you know, water is leaked through and if you look closely he's turned those into faces there's like oh. d- demonic faces hiding in the backgrounds of, wow. of most of these shots and there's a scene where she's like goes out through the apartment and goes down a hallway and she walks past us she doesn't go up the stairwell she just walks past a stairwell out a door and out of the apartment and the camera pans up to the wall and there is a five foot long cockroach <laughs> live action cockroach on the wall that was watching her the whole time and you're oh, like Jesus God. fuck <laughs> no the world doesn't do that well you have a thing about bugs I, I, I have yeah. a phobia about bugs yeah. that got me is particularly it's hard, but it's, yeah. it's really terrifying oh, eventually God. she's sort of inducted into this cult and she goes through these weird rituals they feed a snake into her navel mm. uh, and they tie her fingers in knots all this weird shit starts happening yeah uh, and you feel like you're on drugs. Like, yeah. I just rented this... This was supposed to be like a Christmas slasher movie. Yeah. What is this, like, s- snakes did, crawling into women's navels movie? What is this what to is, me? Is happening? What's weird to It'll me It'll really is, keep, keep you off balance. What's weird to me is it sounds like the film has selling points. I don't know why mm. you needed to, like... Because sometimes when you're making, like, straight-to-video, especially sequels, uh-huh. people will often, like, take a movie that is kind of similar, maybe an original script, and then just tweak it a little... Mm. So that it can now have the name Sleepaway Camp on it. Yeah. Or it can have, you know, whatever. Um, and this sounds 
like they clearly didn't intend for this to be a sequel to the Christmas Santa Claus slasher movie. Yeah. But it seems really random that it ended up being a Silent Night, Deadly Night. Yeah, I don't know why they it's needed to... so random. Like, Silent Night, Deadly Night, what, it still had that much clout by the time you get to part four? And there was a five as well. Yeah, with Mickey with Rooney. With Mickey Rooney, who, who also who, hated the first movie. Yeah, he was, like, public about saying how the first movie was, like, offensive and, like... Mm. And then he ended up starring in the fifth one, which I suspect was originally called The Toy Maker, and then they called it Silent Night, Deadly yeah, Night. Yeah. He's probably pissed about that. Um, but yeah, I've actually never seen Silent Night, Deadly Night 4, which is ridiculous because I am a huge Screaming Mad George fan. I, if you told me or asked me, who's the greatest practical monster effects maker ever? Mm -hmm. I wouldn't say Greg Nicotero. I wouldn't say Tom Savini. I wouldn't even say Rick Baker. I would say Screaming Mad George. George, Screaming Mad George is a genius. Mm -hmm. So I need to see this movie one of these days, and I'll get around to it. Maybe I'll do it for Christmas, <laughs> even though it's not a Christmas movie. Yeah, um, Screaming Mad George did precious few films. Not enough, that's um, for sure. What is he up to these days? You're you're yeah. you're listed, I think, on his on his Wikipedia page. I'm my um, yeah. See, yeah, the last film he did was Beyond Reanimator, not uh, Bride of, but which Beyond was like Reanimator. Years ago, which now. was yeah, it was 2003. That movie yeah, came. That out. was a prison movie yeah. where. Uh, Reanimator found himself in prison doing experiments, and mm-hmm. there was like more like gene splicing, where someone like didn't just come back as a zombie, but came back as like a rat man. Yeah, uh, which uh, not a great movie. Great, great fucking makeup effects, though. Let's see, uh, he did like some of the creatures in Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, he that did tracks. a lot, of, a lot of the effects in uh, Nightmare on Elm Street parts three and four, like which, the the more imaginative had, ones. Which had cool shit. In it. Um, he did the the monsters in that fight film arena, the sci fi movie. Oh, was that him too? He no also did that one. Yeah, so those things awesome. are really great looking. Yeah, because yeah, he, he worked. He did like some. some I didn't uh, even know he did that one. That's amazing. Yeah, he, 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 he did like movies. makeup and special effects, and like yeah. actually designed creatures for like society. Society and freaks are kind of like the pinnacle. Yeah, uh, the shunting the shunting sequel in society and just sequence. throughout or sequence in, yeah. in and throughout the movie freaks just all of the the makeup on all those uh, yeah all, just, all the characters. Astounding. He 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 was the one who finally designed He Who Walks Behind the Rose. Oh, in uh, Children of the Corn Three: <laughs> Urban Harvest. Someone had to. Somebody had to do and, it. And you know they, what? You may as well get the best. You yeah. know who I'd get is Screaming Mad George, yeah. man. Holy shit! All right, well that's awesome. Mm-hmm. That's a great pick. I have I have a couple more horror movies. Actually, I might as well get to them. Um, my next pick is a film that was really obscure for a long time, and thank God, was finally rescued from obscurity. It started doing the Midnight Circuit, uh, and it finally got like a proper home video release, at least in America, because it is a French horror film that has been released under multiple titles. Uh, I saw it as Dial Code Santa Claus originally. Oh, that, this is how I saw it too. Yeah. Dial Code Santa Claus. Uh, but then it was like I think it's currently you can I think it's still on Shutter, but like when it's been released in America lately, it's gone under the name Deadly Games, which doesn't sell the Christmas angle enough at all. Uh, it is a uh, horror movie about a kid. It came out uh, in it was like made in '88, released in '89. <clears throat> uh, this kid, uh, his like mom runs like a department store, and he lives in this really big house, and it's full of toys and other things. But he's really lonely, hmm. uh, and through a series of machinations, which I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bother you with, uh, he attracts the attention of a serial killer dressed as Santa Claus, <laughs> who is trying to break into the house, and he has to use all of his wit, all of his guile, all of his toys. 
and all of his Rube Goldberg machinations to defend his house from invaders on Christmas. Does this sound familiar to you? <laughs> because the director of this movie tried to sue the makers of Home Alone. Uh, uh, and which honestly, makes sense, yeah. Honestly, it's weird. Um, it's 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 Almost a dark, to an actionable degree. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a darker version. It is a hmm. darker version of the story. It is really a horror movie. People get like stabbed and like and not in like a fun way. Like there's a bit in Home Alone two where Daniel Stern gets electrocuted and for a couple of frames he turns into a skeleton. Yeah, Macaulay Culkin skeletonized a guy <laughs> in Home Alone two. The stuff that those guys go through in Home Alone 2, like the last act of that like, movie it's, it's is a, is a Looney Tune. It's supposed to be slapstick. It is, yeah. but it's so gigantically violent. Mm. It's not just, oh, I fell on my butt and now my butt hurts. It's like, no, I filled a can with cement and swung it at your head so hard that you got knocked down an entire staircase. You're dead now. <laughs> you should be dead. It's a weird, weird tone. It's a miracle Home Alone works. But you know what also works? Deadly Games. It is much darker. It is much more about, like... Because in Home Alone, it's an accident that he's Home Alone. In Deadly Games, it's the neglect of parents working and ignoring their kids at Christmas. Uh, it is uh, frightening. It's, it is heroic. The kid actually does, like, you know, stand up for himself and try to uh, save himself. And I think his grandfather mm. is in there as well. Uh, or his uncle or something. Um, but, um, yeah, it's big, it's atmospheric, it's got an action element that really, really works. It's really quite scary. If you ever get a chance to see this on the big screen, it plays great to an audience. Like, it's a real it's a real crowd pleaser of a, of a Christmas horror movie. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it, it dwindled in obscurity, I think in part because no one wanted to put it out there and, like, bring in the Home Alone comparisons, mm -hmm. even though it came out first. Uh and then finally, yeah, it just started to emerge. It just sort of ended up on the internet a little bit. People mm. saw it and were like, what is this? This is really good. And then people started showing it and then it got a proper DVD release. And now it's still pretty obscure. I think most people haven't heard of it. But it's getting that cult audience and it deserves it and it's really great. Yeah. Um, I agree. Yep. I, I watched it for the first time like two years ago. And yeah. Was, yeah, that was really tasty. It's a cool film. All right, what you got next? Um... Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Black Christmas, mm -hmm. but not the one from the 70s. Which one? Uh, the one from 2019. Oh, I'm so... I did this mm. too. Oh, you, you chose that one? I was okay. like, I'm so glad. Okay, I thought it was um, the only one. That's great. This one was a little bit lambasted when it came out. I didn't give it... A little bit. Yeah, a, a, lot, of, a lot of people really hated it. Um, yeah. I, I actually gave it a, a only a warm review when it came out because mm. um, it's actually like unbearably cheap. Like it, it's it, it, it's one it of those movies like it where it's like money, pushing yeah. up against its really low budget to the point where you can see a lot of the cracks. Yeah. But I appreciate the the premise uh, and uh, it it opens with um, there's this wonderful uh, speech 
from... Well, first of all, it opens with Imogen Poots... Yes. Uh, ...calling out sexual assault on her college campus. Yes. She, um, uh, she like, and there's, like, a fraternity that has been covering up hmm. uh, its, its various members... Uh, committing varying degrees of horrifying sexual assault. And uh, Imogen Poots is part of a sorority, and she's been trying to tell people about her yeah, experiences, yeah. and no one fucking cares or believes her except, yeah, so her, she, except her sisters. Yeah, so she's, yeah. She's, she's shouting it out at, like, it's like an open mic night or something, and yeah. She, yeah, she's, like, shouting it out, and everybody's just sort of booing her. It's like, no, this is a problem. Yeah. Uh, they talk to one of the professors, played by Carrie Ellis. Yes. He, he's like the celebrity of the movie. Well, I guess Imogen Poots he, is also the celebrity, she, but... Yeah, he was, he's like the older get. Yeah. Like, yeah. And uh, he gives, like, a wonderful speech straight out of, like, Harold Bloom. Mm. Like, some one of some old, dusty old academic. About how, oh, we can't, uh, we can't diversify our syllabus because that means you're just sort of missing out on all of the old greats. Yeah, like, well, yeah. all we... the old greats. All of history is full mm. of white... He's an English professor. Mm. All of history is full of uh, important books by white authors. What are you supposed to do? Ignore the 1800s? Yeah. And I'm like, you don't have to read every book from it. Yeah. With the shit. <laughs> yeah, it's, all, it's all men justifying their shitty yeah, and, um, yeah, And yeah, it's about men covering up these crimes and you know, there's of course a stalker around who's stalking, who's, mm-hmm. who's doing these murders, who's covering these things up. Um, the final twist, however, is where it goes. And I'm going to tell you what it is mm-hmm. because it's a selling point of the movie. And, it's very and, weird. And hiding it uh, would only make the movie seem less interesting. Yeah, if you really uh, so, don't want to know and you just trust mm. our recommendation, skip forward a couple of minutes. Uh, but but yeah. uh, it, it turns out a lot of these frat boys mm. who are not, they're not just covering up sexual assaults just to sort of mm. get each other's backs and make sure they can continue to get away with these crimes. Uh, it turns out they are also part of a cult yeah. A kind of a Masonic-like cult, uh, where they go into a back room and they engage in this ritual where they literally drink physical toxic masculinity out of a glass. Yeah, it's a toxin. <laughs> it's a literal toxin in this movie. <laughs> in order to become men, they drink toxic masculinity, and I love that. That's so much fun. <laughs> you you either hear that, oh. and you go, oh, I'm mad, hmm. or you go, okay, that's fun. That's fun, yeah. That's pretty fun. Um... I love this movie. Mm. I really do. I, I think there's an element of the ending that I think, like, there's, like, one character who kind of, like, gets let off the hook a little too easily, which I think undermines its its overall, you yeah. know, premise. It's a, it's a quibble. Mm. I love the... the this movie was uh, written by its uh, director, Sophia Tikal, and also April Wolf, who has done works as a film critic. And has uh, been on our podcast. Yes, so. we, we did our Cancel Too Soon episode, Cop Rock, with her. So we mm. have a connection to her. So full disclosure, we, we, we do know her. Uh, we're not close. Mm. Uh, and uh, they wrote a really, really great screenplay. Now, mm. some of the actual kills, at least some of the early ones, are they're just okay. There's like one where someone gets stabbed with an icicle. It feels this is where like the money thing kind yeah, of feels like yeah, it kind of. Like, and this the, movie the, was the actual, really rushed. Too. The actual horror mayhem isn't yeah. isn't first rate. You no, know, um, and it, it feels like it's like aiming for like a lower rating than maybe it needed to. Uh, once it kicks in though, and there's like you know like uh, frat boys like hunting people with like a crossbow, mm-hmm. like all oh, that's really really intense. But where this movie is really great is um, <clears throat> it's portrayal of the characters, like the actual, uh, especially the protagonists, are written with such uh, uh, intelligence and depth. Uh, their silliness, like the, the comic relief in this movie, still feel like, they, like it comes from like a, an interesting real character. Some people uh, uh, complained that like, oh, these characters talk about issues 
so much. Nobody talks like that. Mm. I know people I, who talk like that. Have, have you not talked to people before? <clears throat> I mean, yeah, not everybody talks about the same things, but it's a college campus where people are, like, studying things and actually are engaging in activities where they are trying to make a difference in the world. People talk about issues. People talk about sexism when it is relevant, and it is relevant throughout this entire film. Uh, it is. I think this is actually one of like the better films from like the last five years, just in terms of capturing how different generations talk. Mm. Oh, it doesn't sound like your older movie? Good! It's from 2019! It should sound like different people. <laughs> and I love the original Black Christmas. I think it's one of the best horror movies oh, ever yeah, made. Absolutely. It, if, if you put me to the test, I'd say it's better than this movie. I'm not going to fight that, but... It's a different film. It's a different generation. And I remember some people arguing, well, Black Christmas was so much, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't all about this, like, sexism. And it was so much subtler with its themes. It's literally about abortion. Yes. That's literally o the plot of the movie. Openly about it. Yeah. It's, a, it's the protagonist is a woman who has a boyfriend. She wants to get an abortion. He doesn't want her to. That's the, the A plot besides the actual serial killer bit. And that connects to it. Uh it's not fucking subtle. It is a feminist film. Also, the early 2000s remake, Black Xmas, mm -hmm. is pure nonsense. <laughs> I, it makes I didn't no, see that one. It yeah. makes no sense whatsoever. It is completely chopped up in the editing room. They literally shot bits of that movie only to use them in the trailer. They never intended to put them in the film. Like, it's a hatchet job. Yeah. It's also quite fun. Hmm. It's a. It's not a good movie, but it is a fun movie, and I. I we're at the point now. Where we've got Black Christmas and two remakes, and I like all of them. But this 2019 one is quite special, and people were so virulently sexist in the way that they approached this from the beginning. Yeah. That, and I know some people. I know some people approach it that way, and I know that it really hurt the word of mouth, and it just never had a chance. And that sucks, because even though it, it may not be as well-moneyed as it should be, even though it probably, you know, if it had been in development for another six months to a year, maybe the, the it could have been tidier mm. as a production or a screenplay. It was a very quick production from beginning to end. Uh, I could say that about a lot of great horror movies. A yeah. lot of great horror movies have weirdness and flaws uh, or bits where they overplay their hand or whatever, and we enjoy them. This movie's great. I'm so glad you picked it. <laughs> okay. I'm so glad you... Because I remember you being kind of lukewarm on it like when yeah, it first came yeah. out. I'm glad it grew on you. That makes me really happy. Um, so yeah, that was my well, pick as well. I, I... You know, when it comes out, it's like I have to say everything good and bad about it. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, I walk out of the theater, it's like, oh, well, that was a little shoddy. And if, mm -hmm. as a horror film, I think there are a lot of weak elements to it. That's true. Um, Can't I, fight that. <clears throat> yeah. I did the know, good way to In bad. terms of how yeah. scary it is and in terms of how, like, mm. gory fun it is, you can see it's straining against its budget. It, yeah. it feels like it's really struggling. Um, but it has some interesting ideas, and mm -hmm. that's really what I'm going to take from a movie, ultimately. I got mm -hmm. some of the biggest, harshest shit. From people who read my review, mm. there's always a few reviews that you do when you're a critic where oh, people yeah, just I'll get just down on you for it. Like, oh, you again. didn't like Rambo: Last Blood? What are you, an asshole? And I'm like, oh god, it's not a good movie. I don't. Yeah, really Ram Rambo: Last Blood got a lot, lot I got a lot, cut a lot of crap for that yeah. one. Yeah, and just me, not just liking this movie. I really like this movie when it came out, flaws and all. Like, I, you mm. know, it's got these problems, but I don't think it really undermines the whole movie. Uh, I got such shit from the fucking worst people. <laughs> and it's one thing if you don't care for the movie, that's fine. But if you approach it from this weirdly misogynistic 
perspective. Like, I remember when, around the time this movie came out, some people uh, added trivia to the IMDb that was just flagrantly false about, like, this movie was made by a bunch of virulent misogynists who, like, actively wanted to hurt men. Oh, and I'm like, God. That was, like, literally in there for, like, a well, day. I actively want to hurt that guy. Yeah, that sucks, right? Jesus Christ. Yeah, grow, grow the fuck up. <laughs> anyway, um, I'm glad you picked that. That's a good right. pick. What's your next pick? Um, I'm going to shift gears a little bit uh, mm. because I have no way to sort of segue into this one. <laughs> Uh, and this one, you, you might understand why this movie was so um, just openly rejected when it came out in 1994. Okay. But I'm going to be talking about Mixed Nuts. You know, I've Steve never seen Martin all of movie. Mixed Nuts. All right. I got nothing against uh, it, I guess, but I just never saw all of it. Mixed Nuts is a comedy about a suicide hotline. Yep. So it's a pretty fun premise. It's like a remake of a French uh, it's, film or It was a French movie first. Yeah. Uh, um, it's a Nora Ephron film. Yeah. I've never seen Nora Ephron, Ephron get quite this bleak. Okay. Um, it's set in Los Angeles, so yeah. the whole joke is it's Christmas time, but, you know, they're like, they're on the beach. Mm. And, uh, yeah, it's about a suicide prevention hotline. People call in, they're really desperate, and it's treated like a slapstick comedy. Okay. Like, they make, they make jokes about it. Um, I kind of like how lightly it's treated. It makes mm. light of something very serious. Not in a way that's trying to make light of people's pain, though. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's actually very frank about people's pain. Yeah. Uh, and when uh, and it's set at this this hotline, and uh, people do start sort of like a bunch of strangers go there because they're yeah. desperate. They have no, nowhere else to go. It's Christmas time. And it's essentially about how they have to cobble together a Christmas... Mm. With this found family. Yeah. Uh, but along the way, there's like some criminals that break in. Somebody accidentally dies. They have to hide the body. They have to hide the body in a, a Christmas tree. Uh, this was one of Madeline Kahn's last movies. She spends literally mm. almost the whole movie trapped in an elevator. <laughs> She's trapped in the elevator with like a karaoke machine. And so she gets bored and just starts singing in the elevator. <laughs> uh, Liev Schreiber plays a trans woman. Okay. And uh, she's rejected by her family for being trans. They mock her, and she goes to this hotline. Uh, she meets Adam Sandler, who's there, who's just kind of a little weirdo. And you know what? They're very respectful for, of each other. Hmm. And everybody's very warm up to each other. Nice. Uh, I think it works. Whether okay. or not you think it works is going to be maybe uh, your, your mileage may vary. But I think uh, in dealing with a lot of really bleak subject matter, it really kind of points out that there is something to be found on the outside. Mm. Uh, and <clears throat> working your way back into acceptance isn't always going to be the path for you. Trying to be accepted by the people who just don't accept you isn't going to be the path for you. But there's going to be somebody out there, somebody out there on the fringe, mm. mixed nuts, a lot of weirdos who are willing to be your family. And I find that part of this movie to be weirdly comforting. Hmm. Uh, okay. It's been a while since I've seen it. I know it has a. a I, I met uh, Steve Martin is the lead actor. He's the one who's yeah. uh, reading, the, uh, uh, running this hotline, uh, and it's um, oh, uh, uh, Rita Wilson. Rita Wilson. Yeah. And name on the tip of my tongue. Yeah. And she, yeah, she's uh, also working there. She's wonderful. Uh, Rob Reiner is in the movie. Mm -hmm. Anthony Alpaglia is in the movie. Uh, Gary Shandling is in the movie. Parker Posey. Hell of a cast. Um, Christine Cavanaugh 
is one of the who plays the voice of Babe. Yeah, uh, she's a cop, cop in this movie. Hell of a cast. Yeah, Stephen Wright plays a guy at a phone, uh, like he's one of the callers. So there's this there's this weird era in the early '90s where we got like in a row like a lot of kind of dark American Christmas movies. Yeah, some of the remakes, but like, and we got the Ref uh, with Dennis mm. Leary and also Kevin Spacey uh, and Judy Davis as well. Mm. Uh, that that you know Kevin Spacey aside, that's that's a pretty great movie. Uh, or um, we had what was it Trouble in Paradise with uh, Nicolas Cage, John Lovitz, and Dana Carvey. Oh yeah, yeah. As brothers who like pull a heist, but then get trapped in the small town because of a snowstorm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not very good. But um, I, I didn't see that one. No, it's it like... wasn't very good. But like we just had like a, a slate of those like all in a row. And I think I think mixed nuts was just the one. You know, like when there's it like came a at whole, the tail end of the trend. Well, it's like you know when there's a whole trend of things, and there's just like that one that one movie you don't see. Like yeah, I found I saw all the, all the found footage movies, but I never saw Paranormal Activity three. And you're like, oh, that no. was one of the good ones. Ah, shit. So apparently, I missed this was a mistake oh. to mix to miss this one because hmm. I don't know. Like I I have a soft spot for like just Steve Martin in general, hmm. but like Steve Martin like. Even like his obscure stuff is pretty great. Did you ever see um, Simple Twist of Fate? I didn't see Simple Twist of Fate. Yeah, which is more of a melodrama, good, yeah. really. He plays like a, um, it, it's a, oh, it's an adaptation of a book by who? Um, it's an adaptation of a famous book. It's, yeah. it's oh god, this is gonna drive me up the wall. Okay, I'm gonna look this up. <laughs> uh, he plays like a a, a really mean. Uh, uh, it came out the same year as uh, yeah, just mixed nuts. Yeah. Uh, he plays a really mean, like, guy who's been, like, hoarding all of his wealth for forever. Uh, and, oh, it's, uh, it's based on Silas Marner. It's based on Silas Marner. It's, America, it's an right. updated uh, version of Silas Marner. He plays, like, a all rich right. guy who's been hoarding all his money, and he ends up yeah, caring for a little kid uh, her whole life, and it warms his heart. And then, like, later on in life, like, her parent, real parents come into the scene and it becomes a whole thing. It's not great, but he's just so good. <laughs> he's so good. Um... He's- uh, not all of Steve Martin's films are great. No, that's true. But he's, he's usually done a lot good of trash. Him. But you know, he's, he's just, yeah. You can tell when he's done like it's it's like a one for you, one for me kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I mix that. I will have to check that one out. Yeah, one day. I really it, will. like I feel like mm-hmm. it. I can't speak to how well it's aged. Because yeah. it's been a while since I've seen it, and uh, it sounds like something that might not have aged very well. It's hard to say, yeah. but uh, you know, I, I, I trust your opinion. I'm sure that even if elements haven't aged well, there's something there. Yeah. Um, I am going to segue into, because that's a remake of a French film. I'm going to yeah. uh, talk about another film that was, uh, when it came out, a remake of a pretty obscure film. Uh, it uh, had a pretty big cast of people who you would definitely have known at the time, and some you would still know today. Uh, award winners, mm. uh, famous, uh, important filmmakers doing acting. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm trying to be vague about this as I set it up for funsies. Uh, and yeah, and it was an obs- uh, it was uh, a remake of a movie that had come out, had cool people in it, no one gave a shit. Um, it, it really wasn't terribly popular. Uh, and then in the late 70s, Marlo Thomas got it into her head... <laughs> <laughs> to remake It's a Wonderful Life That's with right. her in the James Stewart role. Mm-hmm. Marlo Thomas was uh, on That Girl. She was a huge TV star. I know her as Free to Be You and Me. There you go. The children's record, which I listened to as a kid. Yeah, she was huge. I, I don't think enough people know her now, but That Girl was a delight. She was just absolutely sparkling as a, as a performer. 
And yeah, she want she I, I guess she was a fan of It's a Wonderful Life. She they remade It's a Wonderful Life, which at the time when this movie came out, which I think was nineteen seventy seven, like it wasn't uh, rediscovered yet. Was no, it? it wasn't. It was actually still pretty obscure. I mean, that movie had come out. James Stewart was a big deal. Frank Capra was a big deal. It got nominated for some Oscars. It won a special Oscar for inventing a new kind of fake snow that wasn't like made of a chemical that could kill you. <laughs> which uh, it was previously asbestos. Yes. Or they would what they would do is they would use like uh, uh, painted uh, or cornflakes, like, uh, corn but then animals would come into the set and ruin it because it's food. Uh, so they invented it, and I think it's still basically the kind they use today. Uh, but it was a box office disaster. It destroyed a studio. It was so unpopular that when the time came around to renew the copyright, they didn't bother. And for many years, it was in public domain. And I still don't think it's okay that you can bring something out of public domain. <laughs> I still think that's fucked up. I don't think that should be okay. I feel like once it's in public domain, you can't say, oh, we want it again. Too late. <laughs> what do you want? Rest right? of the people, who are you going to yeah. pay for it? Yeah, exactly. All of us? Yeah, I'll, I'll take my cut. What the shit? So there was a time when It's a Wonderful Life was in public domain, and... <clears throat> Bless you. And the thing with public domain movies is they would just air whenever. Uh, but because it started to get a surge in popularity, and part of the reason it became more visible was because of this TV remake, uh, which is called It Happened One Christmas. Uh, it started playing more and more, and people started to realize, hey, you know this movie's pretty good? <laughs> hey, you know this movie's kind of great? Hey, you know this movie is one of the best movies literally ever made, and now we consider it that. And we have a little bit of that to happen with Christmas, which is pretty good. Uh, Marlo Thomas plays, uh, you know, a young woman. She uh, was raised in a small town. She always dreamed about uh, going somewhere else, uh, you know, living her life, traveling, adventuring. But every time it seemed like it was her time to do that, something happened. And she had to uh, stay home to take care of the family, that kind of thing. Um, and it feels eventually like her whole life has been wasted, and then uh, she spends her whole life uh, it, it fighting off uh, a uh, evil uh, capitalist kind of Scrooge type, uh, played in this version by Orson Welles, <laughs> who is not phoning it in. He's actually because well, he's, he's he's he could sometimes. Yeah. He no he he's selling it. He's actually really 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 good as uh, as uh, Mr. Potter. Um, so, uh, just like in It's a Wonderful Life, she gets to the point where everything is a total disaster and she's thinking about ending her own life. And uh, they send an angel to uh, intervene. And the angel decides, you know, I'm going to show you what life would have been like if you'd never been born and see how much better everything is because you existed. And the angel is played by Cloris Leachman. <laughs> the great Cloris Leachman, who's really delightful in this. Um, the problem with a movie like It Happened One Christmas is that the original is so great... That even if the remake is just okay or pretty good, you're gonna say it sucks. Yeah, you're gonna say, "Oh, it's it, it's it, why do they even bother?" And and the, the re honestly, why do they bother? Well, now you know what it's a wonderful life is. So I think there's a good justification for this one. Um, and you know what? It's a cute film. It's a cute film. They used to do. They don't really do it very much anymore. But they used to when they would they would make like a big movie. And then they would occasionally like restage it for the radio, sometimes with the, with the, the, the same actors, because home video didn't exist yet. And this was a way for you to like listen to the movie. Or they would uh, they made it to uh, Miracle on 34th Street, and then they would occasionally remake it on television. Why? 
because it's fun because this actor hasn't played Santa Claus yet. You know, it's a, it's a restaging. It's just like a new theatrical, like, oh, they're doing Hamlet again? Mm-hmm. Yes, I haven't seen that actor do <laughs> Hamlet yet. That can be exciting. If you just look at it as a restaging and it doesn't have to be as great as the original, it's very sweet. It's very sweet. It's also not really released very well, but it is easy to find online. Uh, and God knows it's got novelty value. Yeah. So it's worth checking out if you feel like you've seen everything. Uh, and uh, yeah, and Marlo Thomas is really good. Orson Welles is really good. Cloris right. Leachman's really good. What are you going to do? What, are you, what am I going to do? Watch you're gonna, it. You're going to watch it. That's I, what you're going to do. I've seen it. it it's pretty we, good. We, you want to watch it. Yeah, together. it's pretty good, right? It's pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Certainly better than you would imagine they remade It's a Wonderful Life and nobody yeah. has heard of it. I, I would, would say be, that, you know, I would say that the weakest part is actually Marlo Thomas. <laughs> like she doesn't have that kind of down on her luck kind of quality that Jimmy Stewart could bring to a role. No, she doesn't really get the sad sack quality yeah. that he gets. She's good, but you're right. She's yeah. not the she's not like the she, best she, part of the movie. She she's a she's a children's show host. She's a little too warm an actress yeah. to play a role like that. Yeah, you gotta really be able to sell the bleakness at the end. I will grant you like that. I think James Stewart was able to with I, I'll freely admit that James Stewart is a slightly better actor than Marlo Thomas. But Marlo Thomas how is dare, still a fun how, actor. How daring. Right? <laughs> I have nothing I'm against. Take not, a stand. Not, not a damn thing against Marlo Thomas. No, I think she's great. Look, some people are just, you know, we, when multiple people play the same role, you're going to mm. say to yourself, no, you that person had a better them. grasp yeah, yeah. on it. You know, that's fine. If this was the only version of It's a Wonderful Life that ever existed, because mm. it's based on a short story as well. Uh, if this is the only version of that story that ever existed, mm. it would be probably well remembered. At least yeah. as a TV movie, mm. you know. It was, it was a good TV movie. It happened one Christmas. But it has that to compare it to, so of course it's going to be obscure now. Uh, we got, uh, we I think you got three more. Uh, I have three more. What you got? Um, I have a science fiction movie that's set at Christmas. Oh, you didn't. I did. Oh God damn it! Tell uh, me about Prometheus. I, I, I chose Prometheus. <laughs> of course you did. Um, I love Prometheus. I know you love. Why did you marry un- Prometheus? Unguardedly love Prometheus. Uh-huh. I liked it when it came out, and I still like it. Uh-huh. I was a little bit uh, taken aback when I learned that there was backlash and hatred toward Prometheus. I don't think there's uh, hatred. I don't think I just don't think people didn't like it very much. Yeah. I don't know if there's. I mean, I guess it messes with the canon, but I don't really. I, I think maybe I didn't. Maybe I just missed it. I think uh, it, uh, it it's a, a prequel to Ridley Scott's film Alien from 1979. Yeah. Uh, and I think maybe a. When people refer to the Alien series, I think they're referring to James Cameron in particular. Mm. They like the sort of shoot 'em up action of Aliens. I think at the very least, you're interested mm. in Sigourney Weaver and the specifically the Xenomorph. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, if nothing else, I think you at least want and, uh, those two elements. And Ridley Scott said, "No, no, I'm actually a little bit more interested in a broader mystery involving that creature because." Uh, in the first Alien, we don't know what it is. Yeah. Uh, they they find a bunch of le- the human characters. It's the future. Find a bunch of alien eggs on mm-hmm. a ship. They don't know what it is. Something leaps out, attaches on somebody's face. It implants eggs. The the creature leaps out of his chest, starts killing them off. Uh, schlocky premise that was originally envisioned as like a, a cheap B movie, but mm-hmm. was wasn't it really made, called Star Beast? Yeah, something like Star Beast, which is and, um, which is the name of the next episode of Doctor Who. Oh no, kidding! Like when David Tennant returns in Doctor Who, like called this this Beast. month, it's called the Star Beast. Well, yeah, it was the the original title of Alien. That's cool. But uh, yeah, Ridley Scott had more ambitious ideas. I'm going to turn this into something a little bit more down to earth, <clears throat> down to earth, well, realistic, uh, more grounded, more more grounded. Yeah, it's like yeah. more working class astronaut characters. They wear yeah. kind of more inter- uh, it's pretty novel at the ordinary time. clothing. They talk over each other. Uh, 
And he hired us, the, famously, the Swiss surrealist H.R. Giger, to design the creatures. And the creature looks like a, a, a penis made of teeth. It's like... <laughs> It's funny, but you're really, not it's, wrong. it's really horrifying, and yeah. it's it's kind of funny because you can go into like a video arcade, and that creature is just up on like on a machine now. Yeah, it's, been it's like we know what we know what it yeah. looks like it, now. Disney but owns it now. Disney owns that creature. Disney now. owns Alien and Predator. It's a phallus. It's, yeah, and it, the Predator yeah. and the Predator was was was, was vaginal. Was, was vaginal. <laughs> Disney <laughs> owns that. Uh, I, I, I've always found it's it's really uh, kind of fun that Alien and Predator were like paired up against each other because yeah. Alien is about a woman being savaged by a giant penis yeah. and Predator is about these big burly dudes being savaged by a vagina-faced monster. Yeah. So there, there's, a, there's a lot a lot of uh, a lot of gender gender dynamics going on. Sometimes you hear and, about like, oh, we're going to like do a comp- like these two characters are going to meet up and you're like, why? Why those alien two? Versus, alien versus Predator? Yeah, that would make sense. Kind, kind, that yeah, that, that, that tracks. <laughs> the alien yeah. and the Predators. Yeah, have um, Robocop meet Popeye Doyle. Well, I guess they're both cops, but <laughs> I don't know. Detroit Confidential. The, it's the, LA Detroit, Confidential. The, th- the, the three LA Confidential cops meet up with a Robocop. <laughs> It's uh, no, funny because uh, it's true. Prometheus uh, begins in like prehistoric times, yeah. like like ancient Earth. Yeah, and a gigantic creature, an alien yeah. creature that looks like a Greek statue. It's like nine feet marble, tall yeah. and it has like marble skin. Uh, <sighs> dissolves its own body and seeds the the planet with its own DNA. So mm-hmm. we're looking at the uh, birth of humanity yeah, and probably every other living thing. Yeah, we, we're looking at the the birth of earth and uh, the idea that humanity evolved from the DNA of this thing. And uh, fast forward a couple, a uh, couple of years, mm. uh, hum- humanity has evolved and now they've found pa- cave paintings that have sent them to the stars. They have uh, spaceship technology. Now they're going to fly out to this distant mm. planet and figure out what these cave paintings are because maybe it has something to do with life on earth. Yeah. We're investigating this big marble being. Yeah. Uh, there's an android on board, and because we we've seen all the alien movies before, we know that androids are a bit dodgy. Yeah. They're kind of insane. They're up to something. Mm. Uh, at least Bi- from the first alien. Yeah. Bi- Bishop, notwithstanding, and Call. Oh, that was the uh, Winona Ryder. Winona Ryder's character. Yeah. yeah. It's really mostly just Brian Cox that ruined that for everybody. No, it was uh, Ian Holm. It was Ian Holm. Was oh my Ian god, Holm. how did yeah. I do that? You're right. Uh, <laughs> they, they don't look entirely dissimilar. No, I, I, yeah. I, I could I could forgive you. I, Ian Holm could have uh, played Hannibal Lecter and Brian Cox could have played Ash. Ian Holm would have been great Wait, as not Hannibal Ash. Lecter. Ash was the one who uh, was implanted with the... What was the name of Ian Holm's character? It was Ash. It wasn't Ash? Yeah, Ash was Kane. The, that's who... Yeah. That's who Ash was, was goddamn robot. Yeah. Kane was... John uh, Hurt. John Hurt Kane. was Kane. Yeah, 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 that's... I got him mixed up. Yeah. Um, no, uh, but so yeah, uh, Nomi Rapace and these, uh, these other characters with this android are going off to this distant planet. They've been funded by Guy Pierce, another Guy yeah. Pierce movie. Uh, I don't know why they got Guy Pierce in old age makeup. They could have just hired. There was originally actor. supposed to be, I think, a prologue, but they cut the prologue oh, okay. where he was younger, and then we oh, have okay. him as an old man, and then you would see Guy Pierce as an old man. But when you cut the prologue, you just you it's just like have when, Guy Pierce as an old it's man. It's like when Winona Ryder shows up in the J.J. Abrams Star Trek in older age makeup. Oh. She was supposed to be in more flashbacks as the younger version of the oh, character, okay. but then they cut those flashbacks, and so, now it's just like just got we could have gotten actress. someone who's fifty. I don't know. Okay, fine. <laughs> Or when all writers fifty now, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, 
what they find there is one of those big marble beings, but dead. Yeah. Something is something horrible has happened. And as they investigate, they find more uh, creatures kind of like the xenomorph. Like they, they exist in pods or eggs and they break out and they're able to... And they're just vicious. They just want to kill. Yeah. Uh, and something that's actually been going, been posited throughout all of the alien pictures was mm-hmm. that the monster was a weapon. Yeah, the, the, biological the monster, weapon, the monster yeah. was like designed in order to kill. It was like an extermination device. And that's something Ridley Scott sticks to, that these creatures are all extermination devices. And they find through some investigation that they're supposed to send these things to Earth. These marble beings are sending creatures to Earth to kill humans. Uh, why? <laughs> why are they doing that? Well, there's a few shots throughout where there's Christmas trees. Uh, there's a lot of discussions about faith. The Nomi Verpas character is a Christian, and her husband is an atheist. And they have discussions about their faith and about God and about the non, non-existence or non-existence thereof. Mm. Um, they say, well, we found this, this origin. We found these marble beings probably seeded life on Earth doesn't that prove to you that there's no God? And she, and she just says, well, who made them? Uh, just yeah. you know, keep, keeps on... The question just has to, you can has just to get bigger. You just keep dodging yeah. that question until the end or, of time. Or the question just gets bigger. Uh, that's, that's, the, that's, that is the way you put that, to keep that question <laughs> going until the end of time. And uh, eventually you start to put these things together. When you start thinking of the timing of it, the way information travels across space, it takes mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of a while... Takes you know, light eight minutes to get from the sun to to Earth. So yeah, pick up the pace, light. It's gonna (laughs) Jesus, light. What the hell? They made a joke about that in Futurama. Like you can't break the speed of light. Yeah, I know. We sped up the speed of light, (laughs) (laughs) so now we can go faster. Wait, you can't do that. Yes, we can. It's a cartoon. Uh, But the timing works out that you know the information would sort of reach Earth. This beings traveled to Earth maybe about two thousand years ago. Mm. Something happened. And now information has made it its way back and they've decided to wipe out humanity. And you start putting it together with all of the Christian imagery and you realize, wait a minute, Christ was an alien yep. who was sent to Earth. Yep. We fucked it up by crucifying Christ and now these space aliens want to kill us. Um, hey, and you know hey what? guess what? Ridley Scott's Catholic. What do you have, what do you have guessed? <laughs> It's it's replete with all of this, uh, not just Christian imagery, specifically Catholic imagery. Yeah, it's and very this idea subtle of, about it, too. It's, it's pretty subtle, yeah, pretty <laughs> subtle about it, the way it's got these underhanded Catholic images. It's not really. And about, uh, you know, re- retribution and wrathful gods. It's very Old Testament. And I feel like there's, yeah, this sort of like, un- these Christian underpinnings make it a way more interesting than just some sort of, like, creature mayhem picture. But I like the creature mayhem, too. I like the design of this everything. Mm. I like it's not H.R. Giger. It's because uh, H.R. Giger died at that point. Yeah, but all of the monsters are like squishy and weird. There's all there's a lot of different kinds of creatures that proliferate in different ways, but they all essentially have the same M.O. They want either want to kill you or implant your body so they can reproduce. Mm. They kill as they reproduce. That's another another thing. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, yes. Somebody roll runs away from a rolling ship. By run, running lengthwise instead of widthwise. Basically, uh, it's the sort of thing where if you keep running in one direction, mm. it's definitely going to fall on you. Mm. If you run two feet to the left, it won't. Yeah. Charlize Theron, who's playing a super smart character, <laughs> doesn't really do that. A lot of super uh, smart I, I characters, say, scientists say, uh, and things, do things in this movie that 
are incredibly inane. Uh, I'll say this. If I were in that situation, I'd probably <coughs> make stupid decisions as well. And that's the thing. That's And that's a tricky balance yeah. filmmakers have to, to, to grasp because people aren't always smart. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me. Even smart people often make foolish or self-destructive choices or they're not self-aware enough to know what they really want or what they really need. To be able to convey within a narrative that your character is flawed enough to make that kind of mistake is possible. And Ridley Scott didn't do it. <laughs> but I can understand that in the abstract. And if that was my only problem with the movie, it wouldn't really be a problem. Mm. <clears throat> I find the movie to be... First off, I'm going to give I'm going to give it its flowers. Uh... One of the best looking sci-fi movies of the last 10, 20 years. Oh, yeah. It's just astoundingly good looking movie. Like, really like beautiful. Incredible production design. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it looks fucking phenomenal. And I will happily put it on a TV and just go, wow. <laughs> happily do it. Um, I don't think the story is structured very well. I don't think the characters are, mm. uh, work terribly well. Uh, and although I appreciate the ideas that it has, I actually think it does kind of a poor job exploring them. I think it brings yeah. them up. And then is just... And then Mayhem, right? And I'm like, yeah. You brought it up. <laughs> like, it'd be one thing if you if you if if it was all, like, subtext. You made it text. And then you just kind of didn't land it. And I was a, trying to be forgiving because the end of the movie suggests that. I'm not going to ruin how it ends. But, like, the end of the movie suggests that the, any characters who survive are going to learn more in the next movie. They're going to go... To yeah. a place to but learn there, there's, more. There's a further mystery here, yeah. and and look, any film that ends with somebody flying into space to kill God is is gonna earn a few points in my in my book. Really, Transformers: The Last Night. Maybe not that one. Okay, wait, no, that was Age of Extinction. Actually, it ended with it that. was Age of Extinction. Yeah, and you hated that movie with a passion. Oh, oh, it hurt me. Yeah, I remember that. It was that. painful to watch. Yeah, I've told the story many times, but you literally walked out of the theater in a daze and into a fountain. I, I and when I asked, and I, when I asked, why are you in a fountain? You did. When I asked, why are you in a fountain right now? You said, I just wanted to feel something. <laughs> That's I, I mean, that, that movie hurt you. I, I, I didn't like strip down and swim in the fountain. No, no, no. You just literally I just put, walked. I, I put my hands in the fountain. I put uh-huh. my hands in water. It's like, okay, there's, there's a natural world that still exists outside of this Transformers bullshit. Anyway. I remember we were driving home after that movie yeah. and a, an upcoming film, I was yeah. uh, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, was about to come out after that movie. Was, it, saw, was it Rise or was it like It was War? Rise of the it Planet was Rise. of the Apes. Okay. Yeah. Um, the first one. The, the, the newest one in like, yeah, a new series. Okay. And the like billboard the had a chimpanzee on a horseback <laughs> holding a gun above its head. And I thought, how sane that image is. <laughs> Compared to what I just saw, it might have been down... the poster for Dawn, but okay, yeah. whatever. It's it's relevant. Whichever um, one it was, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, my point was this: it ends with a bit of a promise that the story will continue, and I'm willing to cut you some slack if you're saying we'll get to it. Mm. We'll, we'll, all those answers that that we teased, we, we do want to do though. Only he didn't. He didn't. He skipped over he skipped it. Skipped over the it. The next yeah. movie, Alien Covenant. They they tell you Alien like, Covenant is abysmal. Oh, it's awful. Way. It looks good, but it's abysmal. Like it, 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 literally, the whole thing that they were building up to in Alien in uh, Prometheus 
is like a one minute flashback mm-hmm. with no information in it. <laughs> what the fuck? Yeah, that, that would have been the interesting story. Like, right? I'm going to go to this planet and talk that to these people. And, me, uh... and that retroactively hurts Prometheus because we never got mm-hmm. where that was going to. And so it feels, I'm okay with like not having a story be completed. I know how weird that sounds, mm-hmm. but I accept that well, that's just life and not yeah. every serialized story will reach its organic ending because of reasons. Um, that one pisses me off more, though, because they were clearly biting off something and they had no intention of chewing it. Yeah. And that um, pisses me off. Um, I've said this before. I'm I'm fond of films that have, like, some sort of interesting idea in them. And I'm willing to forgive a lot about uh, shoddy storytelling. Yeah. Uh, even if it's bad storytelling. Yeah. If there's a lot of interesting thoughts wrapped up in there. Um, yeah. If somebody stumbles trying to say something interesting mm-hmm. and they just sort of give me a jumble of, of strange ideas. Yeah. I'm, I'm still kind of there for it. And I feel mm. that's what Prometheus has. I'm with you uh, in general. Inter- but- yeah. Oh, um, so... Uh, do the characters behave illogically? I don't care. Yeah. That part doesn't bother me at all. Yeah. Um, these two characters have a map. They're still lost. Mm-hmm. I know. It's scary when they're lost. And that scares me. And I like those scenes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like that they get lost in a, an alien catacomb and find these things. You're lost. I I know, but there's an alien catacomb. It's weird. Yeah. Everything's weird. Everything, everything feels a little bit off balance. Everything's out of joint in that movie. And I feel like there are things going on in the film that the characters can't comprehend. And it mm-hmm. feels a little bit... Like you're going insane. Yeah. And I think that's intentional, and I mm. like that about Prometheus. Uh, I'm going to say two quick things. Mm. Uh, one, just in case you missed the point, uh, it actually literally does take place on Christmas. Yeah. By the way, we yeah. didn't really mention that too much, but like we, it, it mm. does. Uh, I, feel like the, we just, I feel like we just okay. left that behind. But no, I, I did mention it. I know, yeah. but it's at the front, and it's been a while. Just in case you were wondering, it's a Christmas movie. Um, but to your point, which is a point that I've made before and I stand by. Mm. I appreciate it when a movie, even a flawed movie, is trying to say something interesting or do something interesting. The difference with Prometheus, and the reason why I don't have as much forgiveness for it for that as as you do, Mm -hmm. is in my estimation, it never gets to the point where they try to say something interesting. They raise the idea of saying something interesting and then never actually really go there. That's the thing that annoys me. Hmm. it's like okay we've got all these big ideas about where we come from everything like that and every time it's getting to the point where we're like okay cool are you actually gonna like actually engage with that like no we're gonna talk about faith and why it's maybe an interesting vague idea well i don't think that's very interesting i think that's the start of an interesting idea and it's not actually the completion and i feel very very strange segueing between this movie which flawed though it may be at least has ambition Uh i'll give you that uh and moving to, and hey, remember when I said at the beginning of the podcast that I only had one TV movie on my list? Uh, like Arnold Schwarzenegger in Commando, I lied. I forgot about this. Oh, yeah. uh, I for, uh, because the the second to last movie I want to talk about. Was it Commando? My, no. Sadly, not a Christmas movie. Uh, no, the second movie, uh, the second last movie I want to talk about, again, not my official number two or anything like that, but... Uh, is, uh, is, a, is a Christmas, a minor Christmas classic, I feel. And I feel... Uh, like I can say that even though I think anyone who saw it has probably forgotten it by now and because they thought it was like a little fad or trend thing and most people didn't see it because it was I think on Lifetime okay uh, but it is of course Grumpy Cat's Worst Christmas Ever I remember you liking this one yeah Grumpy Cat's Worst Christmas Ever uh, aka Grumpy Cat's Worst Christmas Ever the movie uh, uh, came out in 2014, and it's 
Sadly, Grumpy Cat is no longer with us. Tar- uh, tartar Sauce. Tartar Sauce. There was a cat named Tartar Sauce who was very, very cute. No offense, Dante. No offense, Luca. But Tartar Sauce had, had a better social media campaign. Um, <laughs> tartar Sauce had this thing where they always looked a little pissed. But they're uh, so cute. But uh, they still look a little pissed. Tar- yeah, Tartar Sauce uh, yeah, had a kind of just sort of a natural grumpy expression. I think yeah. the, the Grumpy Cat video was mm. like one of the most watched on YouTube. It was a big deal. It, it was a huge a meme, internet meme. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and they sold merch and they made a lot of money just because their cat happened to be a particular kind of cute. Boy, did they luck out. Uh, but Grumpy Cat was very, very cute. And they did make one movie starring the actual Grumpy Cat. It's not a cartoon. It, they didn't get a whole bunch of them. Actual Grumpy Cat is in this movie. And they're voiced by Aubrey Plaza. Which is a great pairing, by the way. Because <laughs> nobody does kind of pissed like Aubrey Plaza. Uh, and uh, she plays... Uh, uh, Grumpy Cat is a cat in a pet store in a mall. And this one girl, her mom like works in the mall. And she's kind of like... <clears throat> Kind of like a latchkey kid, but in the mall. Mm-hmm. Like, everyone knows her. She just kind of bums around. Oh, Grumpy Cat was only seven. I know. Grumpy Cat died kind of young. I know. It's too bad. Um, th- thanks for that downer, Whitney. That was great. That was a great addition. Um, oh, it's just sad. It is sad. Uh, but anyway, Grumpy Cat uh, uh, is in this pet store, and the pet store is maybe going to go out of business, and Grumpy Cat's like, I need to get myself sold. I need to get out of here. I need to... Uh, and... Grumpy Cat latches on to this, this one little girl, and somehow this little girl can hear Grumpy Cat, which is <coughs> very confusing to everybody. Never really explained, but who gives a shit? Uh, and uh, Grumpy Cat offers a complete running commentary on this film, which gradually turns into Paul Blart Mall Cop, where uh, criminals take over like the mall. They're not taking it hostage or anything like that. They're just going to pull a heist on Christmas, and only this little girl and Grumpy Cat are there, and they're going to try to save the day, and Grumpy Cat gets to, like shoot toys at the bad guys and Grumpy Cat's all cute it's like but Aubrey Plaza is saying like very pithy things and it's really really great um it has no right to be as funny as it is that's basically <laughs> this, this This should be a cash in piece of shit it really should by about all an internet rights. cat for goodness yeah sake. exactly yeah. like there's no there's, there's no there's really no business actually being good and yet everyone I know who actually sat down with it was like Actually, that's pretty good. <laughs> it's actually like it's actually genuinely kind of funny. Uh, it was co-written and uh, then directed by Tim Hill, who also directed Muppets from Space. I don't like Muppets from Space. No, a lot of people do though. Uh, he also uh, worked on the SpongeBob SquarePants movies, at least the first two. Um, oh, those I like. Yeah, um, he he directed. I know, but it. it Printed money. Uh, the first Alvin and Chipmunks movie, the not the animated one, like the CG one with Jason oh, okay, Lee. Yeah. Like he, he did the animal thing and the kid friendly thing. Those and thing, those things made money hand over fist. Oh my god, yes! Like just I, I have, astoundingly I've, I've seen successful. Not one of those. I saw half films. of one because my nieces were age appropriate. Okay, and uh, it was <laughs> actually I think it was Christmas. It was like Christmas, oh, wow. and it was just like, hey, listen, we're all just doing stuff over here. Can they're just like, hey, can we just watch TV? And I'm like, oh, okay, whatever. And so I ended up just like hanging out with them and watching whichever one the Chipettes for. Were the Chipettes in the first one? No, I think they whichever one the Chipettes showed up in for the first time. Uh, and you know what? I'm just gonna say it. Hmm. 
not particularly good. <laughs> I, I didn't see the whole thing. I can't judge. Maybe it gets great in the, in the second half. Um, can't much say I cared for it. There you go. That's, that's, that's my that's my one cent. So it's Alvin and the Chipmunks. Mm. Alvin and the Chipmunks, the Squeakwool. Yes, I that, remember that the was, That was the one. Yeah. Okay. I saw Thir- the, third one was I saw called, the Squeakwool. Uh, third one was called Chipwrecked, and the fourth one was called The Road Chip. Yes. Good. I know Thank you. Chipwrecked is the one with John Waters in it. That's And that's all you need, baby. Uh, he, he sits next to Alvin on the plane. I like to think it's a prequel to mm. Seed of Chucky. Maybe so. He plays, plays the, the same, same character. character. He plays the oh, same he character. He plays himself in, in Chipwrecked. He Does plays he John really? Waters. Yeah, he's, okay. he's like, oh, hey, I'm sitting up here in first class next to John Waters. Like, hey, could you pipe down? I'm trying to eat my food. He's like, hey, you can't be rude to me. I've seen pink flamingos. You've seen pink flamingos. <laughs> Alvin has seen pink flamingos. I was just Who a, showed it to you? <laughs> I was just having a conversation online with someone, and there, there, it, something happened. Hmm. From like the nineties, like somewhere around like the late nineties, early two thousand, something shifted, where they would used to make kids movies and they would have elements that were like more for adults, mm-hmm. but they used to be plot elements, you know, like like there would be like um, like a like, drug dealer, like or something. A, yeah, like yeah. there's like an evil drug dealer. So like you ever watch Kindergarten Cop? Like oh, there's all this cute stuff. Ronald Schwarzenegger, he's a teacher. He shouldn't be a but teacher, he, but he's a but, cop and there's criminals. But there's, and, yeah. yeah, and there's actually like abusive parents and shit in that movie, like really intense shit. And you know, as a kid, I, that mo- a lot of that, I didn't say it went over my head, but it didn't really make a huge impact on me because that wasn't what I was interested in. That was the stuff for the parents, something you could take seriously. Somewhere around Shrek, <laughs> doing, like, the bit for the parents mm. stopped being something that was actually interesting to like people who have like more life experience and started to be like, I remember that show. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so gr- like that, that's recognize and that's a weird bit for the parents. Like <laughs> I remember Pink Flamingos. I'm watching an Alvin the Chipmunks movie in a theater. <sighs> Sunrise. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen Pink Flamingos. Why don't we watch it on the plane now? <laughs> oh, what do you, What do you think, Alvin? <laughs> Kill everyone now. Filth is my politics. <laughs> Um, anyway, I digress. Uh, Grumpy Cat's Worst Christmas Ever. Yeah, way better than it has any right to be. Way funnier than it has any right to be. Aubrey Plaza's, you know, mm. she's she's really fucking funny and she nails it. Uh, and you know what? Grumpy Cat was very cute and they did this movie and deserves to be seen. It's quite good. All right. Uh, all right. And uh, you have two left. I have one uh, left. I have, I have two left. Okay. Um, this is one we talked about kind of recently, mm. but uh, I did like it a lot mm. because it's about horrible people. Trying to be hor- out horrible each other. One of them's kind of okay. The other one's an outright villain. Okay. And it's in a Canadian mall, and Santa Claus robs a bank. And Santa oh. Claus, <laughs> Santa Claus is Christopher Plummer, and he is the worst person. Oh, he's evil. He is outwardly he's so evil. Gross. He's great. Uh, I mean, not, but he's despicable and it's fun to watch. Uh, this is also my second Curtis Hansen movie because L.A. Confidential is also Curtis oh, Hansen. Yeah, Curtis funny, Hansen, he didn't, he didn't direct this, uh, he, he but wrote he did, it. Wrote, he did yeah. write it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, takes place in a mall. There's a mm. bank in the mall. Uh, by the way, it's Silent Partner. By the, the way, it's called the Silent Partner. Yeah, uh, Silent Partner is really great. Elliot Gould works in this mall. Yeah, and he notices uh, Santa comes in. He notices something about the way he writes that he's up to something. Well, what happens is like he sees like he's cleaning up for the day and he sees that someone was in there and they wrote down like information about like timings and things like that. And he pieces together 
someone's about to rob this bank. Somebody's going to rob this bank. And he yeah. figures out who it is. Yeah. It's the guy who's impersonating the mall Santa, or possibly got hired as the mall Santa. Yeah. And what he does is, uh, mall Santa comes in, but he knows when he's going to come in. He's kind of figured out the timing of it. So he actually takes money out of his own drawer and stores it, mm-hmm. pushes it aside, yeah, and lets the bank robbery go down, yeah. and then keeps the money, and he can yeah. just blame it on the bank robber. Yeah, the bank robber got some money, he got most of the money, mm-hmm. and it's almost the perfect crime until the bank robber watches mm-hmm. TV and he hears how much money got stolen, mm-hmm. and he's like, that wait a second. I didn't get that much money. <laughs> so he knows Elliot Gould screwed him over. <laughs> yeah, and uh, can he, he knows who the bank teller is, so he begins stalking Elliot Gould. Yeah. And threatening him. So great. There is a single... It's almost a static shot where he goes to Elliot Gould's apartment Mm. and threatens him through the mail slot. Oh, it's terrifying. (laughs) And he just flips it open and we see... And you know what Christopher Plummer's eyes look like. Yeah, very intense. This really intense stare. He just sort of looks up. He's like, I know where you live. And if you're not going to to participate with me, I'm going to break in and I'm going to murder you in a really horrible way. Okay, bye. (laughs) And it's like, oh, shit. There's uh, some really cool bits where, uh, you know, this is it, 1978, it's before cell phones, where uh, he's talking on the phone and can look out the window and see him in the, the phone booth down below. Yeah, he's in so the phone like booth nearest kind of, to his house. Kind of stalk, kind of, yeah, this yeah. weird kind of stalkery vibe to it. That's so great. We get to see what Christopher Palmer does in his spare time, which is just intimidate and be horrible to other people. Oh yeah, he's a monster. Like, he like beats people in a spa. There's a horrible murder in this movie, like, like a mm. terrifying murder in this movie in particular. Yeah. Uh, that goes really bad. Uh, Elliot Gould's a great character in this because he's, he... he's 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 smart, but not too smart. <laughs> like he, he, he makes figured some, out how to do this. He makes it, it's a clever plan, and he makes some bad mistakes. But then he's clever enough to figure out a way around them. Yeah, which is an interesting sort of level of complexity for a character because you want someone who's smart. But not so smart, they're just going to get away with everything. How fun is that? You want to challenge them. So he's got to be kind of smart. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the great thing, because you know that, like, Christopher Plummer could get him. You know? Yeah. He's not like, oh, he's so genius. He's like Sherlock Holmes. No one's ever going to beat him. It's like, no, Christopher Plummer could get him. Like, if just the, the shit breaks the wrong way. Mm. This this could there's end a lot of it. like super close calls oh and God, so you know, intense. There's, there's a bit with a a, a key that's oh, hid, yeah. hidden in a refrigerator that oh, God, doesn't go that, as, oh, as well as the God. characters had hoped. Uh, that's the bit I was thinking of, where mm. it's just like, why would you do that? That's a terrible place to put that. Why would you do that? You know, I wouldn't think to look there. It's yeah. a fun place to like, to hide something. Anyway, um, but uh, no, it this is a this is a corker of a crime movie. Yeah. Like it's mm. really clever. It's really suspenseful. It's a little, it's a, it's not as, it doesn't end as bleak as it could, but it's pretty dark. Yeah. But it, it does resolve in a satisfying way. Oh yeah. 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 It's really, really great. And Chris, seriously, Christopher Plummer, I mean, it's one of the, he's one of those guys, he finally won an Oscar for the movie Beginners. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh. That was like, like 2008 or something? Yeah, but he like, wasn't yeah. even nominated to like the 2000s. Like, mm-hmm. it's stunning. He should have been nominated. He should have won for this. He's so fucking good. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, great pick. I love it. Uh, we're at my number one. Mm. And uh, hey, remember when I said I only I I had uh, two TV movies? Oh no, you have a third, don't you? I lied. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't Do know you just keep I forgetting, or I, I just oh, okay. forgot. <laughs> I just totally forgot. Um, but no, this is this is I think it's one of the best TV movies I've ever seen in my life. Uh, this oh, Land of Heaven. I haven't seen Land of Heaven. Oh. Also, is that oh. a Christmas movie? No, 
There you go. Not for a second. Uh, look, uh, I just like the light. It happened when Christmas is is good, but it's and it's but it, it really coasts a lot on its novelty factor. It's a big reason to recommend it. Grumpy Cat's Worst Christmas Ever is very sweet and very funny and totally worth watching, but great might be a slight exaggeration. Carol for Another Christmas, on the other hand, is quite astounding. Uh, it is a 1964 TV movie. It was written by Rod Sterling. It was directed by Joseph Mankiewicz, which is kind of a big fucking deal. He mm. did the guy who did All About Eve for Christ's sake. Uh, and uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, uh, music by Henry Mancini. Okay. Uh, which is also kind of a big deal. And uh, here's the cast: Sterling Hayden, Ben Gazzara, all right, Eva Marie Saint. Robert Shaw, Britt Eklund, and Peter Sellers. All right. That's a good cast. It's I like defy mur- you to tell me that it's a bad cast. It's like Murder by Death. You no, know, it's like here, astounding. Yeah. It, is, it is a modern retelling of A Christmas Carol. Sterling Hayden uh, plays uh, a rich uh, businessman uh, who uh, doesn't want to get involved in any way. His money or even this country. Uh, in international affairs, he believes uh, that we should all be looking out for ourselves. And as you can imagine, he's visited by by ghosts and shit. Uh, he he ends up going. <laughs> You're going to be visited by some ghosts and shit. <laughs> but whereas in the original Christmas Carol, like he went back, like oh, I was young and I chose business over a girl or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, we see the horrors of World War Two. And wow. then and then when we're in the present day, instead of like going to see Bob Cratchit. Uh, it's basically, you know, there's starving children all over the world. So, you know, like that bit in the Christmas Carol where the, the, the ghost of Christmas present, uh, has a big banquet. Uh, uh-huh. here he dares the Ebenezer Scrooge character. I want you to eat in front of all of these starving kids. Oh, wow. I dare you. Mm. I dare you to have enough of a heart to do that <laughs> and, and not do anything about it. And then it concludes in a nuclear wasteland. Where Peter Sellers is ruling the land and he's like this mad, almost Batman villain, tyrant king. And it's less about, I'm trying to save your soul, and more about, you have the power to actually do something about this. And you have a moral human responsibility to actually use your power, your influence, your life to make the whole world a better place. Someone asked online, I think it was even today, <clears throat> uh, or maybe it was yesterday, but uh, as of when we were recording this, why is it that A Christmas Carol endures? Why it is still such a big deal? And I think there's two elements. Well, it's the fantasy of seeing the misanthrope turned around. Well, I, yes, but I think it's a little bit more specific than that. First off, I think it's just a wonderfully concise, well-structured story. Mm. It's very easy to replicate. It's very easy to adapt. Uh, it's it's time travel, which is fun. Like it's it it works, but thematically, yeah, it's it's not just about a misanthrope though. It's about a rich person hoarding their wealth. Yes. Who at the end of it He's realizes that's yeah. bad and starts sharing the wealth. Not that, not that they're necessarily giving it all away, but they're actually like spending it, uh, yeah. buying presents for people, actually contributing back to the economy, making sure that the people who work for him are actually well paid for their yeah. work. That's the fantasy. Yeah, but, that people yeah, who are in charge um, and have money are capable of feeling shame and improving not just themselves, but everyone around them. Yeah. There's, um, 
a, a trope I've come across in a lot of British literature, not mm. just Dickens, but just everywhere. Yeah. Uh, the, and it's the character type of what they call the meanie. Yeah. And that is somebody who's very, very uh, stingy. Somebody yeah. do, who does have a lot of wealth, but doesn't spend any of it. Yeah. Um, that's Scrooge. Scrooge, yeah. is a, Scrooge is a meanie. Yeah. Uh, we use the word meanie in America it just means somebody who's cruel, somebody who is mm. mean. Meanie, don't be such a meanie is like, give me some money. Yeah. He's a yeah. meanie. He's a meanie. Yeah. Anyway, Carol Farmer the Christmas dwindled in obscurity for a really long time. In fact, I only heard about it from Alonzo Duralde's, uh, when he was doing his book, uh, Have Yourself a Movie, Little Christmas. Yeah. Which you should still buy, by the you way. You can still buy it. You can absolutely still buy it. There have been more Christmas movies that have come out since, but I defy you to find a better book about Christmas movies on the market except maybe the Hallmark movie Christmas book that Alonzo also helped write <laughs> please buy his books thank you uh, but I found out about this from Alonzo Duralde and I was able to at first it was like only available you can only see it in like museum archives but then they started like finally putting it out uh, I think Turner Classic Movies has aired it I think I think they air it every year now but like it's still out there it's great, and it has that wonderful Rod Sterling, because Rod Sterling really believed that the the medium of television, which was not very well respected as an art form in the 50s and the 60s, uh, had the capacity and almost an imperative uh, to tell stories that actually were relevant, that actually mm. spoke to what was happening in the world and the ills within it. Even today, some people still think that art shouldn't do that. Like, just, just let it be subtle in the background so we can ignore it. And Rod Sterling was like, no, I want to confront you with it. And he took a story that is actually about that and made it even more timely and relevant. And God, what a cast. What a great filmmaker. It's incredible. And it absolutely is great. And you should see it if you haven't. I highly recommend it. And I'm very curious what your number one pick is. Uh, my number one, uh, hard hard left turn. <laughs> Le- hard left turn, hard yeah. up turn, or however you want to say it. Uh, this is a film that was lost for many years. Oh. Uh, it was made in 1912. Oh. And, uh, and it was lost, I think, throughout like some point in the 30s. Like okay. every last copy was, was uh, completely mm. lost. And then they found it in the basement of a church in England. Okay. And, and it was saved and they were able to restore it. Um, and it was, you know, finally re-released and it became a hit again. Um, this is one that you probably saw in Sunday school. It's called from the manger to the cross. I actually haven't seen this. You haven't seen it. Right. No, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. It's uh, from a director named Sidney Alcott. Um, okay. And it's, it's the life of Jesus. Okay. And wouldn't you know it? That has to have a Christmas in it. <laughs> well, kind of by definition, it, I suppose it starts with Christmas. Yeah. And it ends on Easter. That's nice. It's a good holiday. It's yeah, good, two good. holidays. Two it's the holi- night before Christmas of its time. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry. That was terrible. <laughs> Easter town? <laughs> there was an Easter town. There, there was, was an Easter egg. town. Yeah, an egg tree. Do you, and we do, beat the Easter bunny in that do, one. Do, do you like have to go in there and be crucified and then brought back? I assume so, yes. <laughs> Every I'd like year. To, I'd like to see Every that Every year. The, night, the nightmare before Easter. <laughs> Jack Skellington died for your sin. Oh, so you Catholic images. I'm not Catholic, by the way, but uh, yeah, you know the gosh darn it, Catholics have the best iconography. Don't they really they? do. We we, we yeah. had a when I was I was raised Catholic, and yeah, we 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 really had a monopoly on that yeah, shit. It's good, good good imagery there. A, a, a friend of mine who was ra- also raised Catholic said that uh, 
excuse me, Catholic churches have to be really sort of fancy and ornate to sort of lure God inside. (laughs) God's not just going to go to any plain old Protestant church. You have to have a really fancy church. And I want to say, I I, I don't know if you're going to say it yourself, but just so we're clear, because I'm pretty open. I'm I'm basically an atheist. Uh, Whitney's not. No. This, we don't mean to be disrespectful and even yeah. I I don't mean to be disrespectful yeah. to religion I just think everything has some humor in it no, yeah so well, just so we're clear one right? of those stubborn assholes who you know, still still yeah. adheres um, <clears throat> at the same time Christians bug the hell out of me well, there's a, uh, they, there seems to be a certain irreverence to life doesn't it I, yeah. I mean the, the way I see it is God must have a sense of humor because he made people with a sense of humor there you go that's uh, great weapon now but um uh, but yeah, from the manger to the cross, classic Sunday school, mm. straight up, blasted Jesus movie. Uh, in fact, the filmmakers like looked to like seventeenth and eighteenth century arts, like Christian art, mm. to create some of the shots. Uh, it's actually like pretty high concept mm. for the time. Uh, for I, I remember seeing this when I was like in my twenties, when I was like kind of going on one of my first major film exploration excursions, just going into video stores and trying mm. to, to get through everything. And I discovered this and it's like every film about Christ, every Jesus story, every Christian story, every Christmas story that you've seen is ripping this one off. Oh. This is the flashpoint of all like cinematic Jesus. That's interesting. I really <laughs> want to say this now. I, yeah. I, I, seriously, I don't think I've ever heard of this. Yeah. Like uh, all of that, like, a lot of the shots and a lot of the art artistry from this movie, which was made in 1912, yeah. started leaking into like the Protestant mainstream Christian art that is like the blandest possible thing well, in the example? 1950s. Like if you've ever seen, you know, sort of placid images of you know the crosses up on the hill or the way Jesus looked, sort of like that. A very particular, like, yeah, with that kind of like wavy long white guy with wavy long brown hair. So you're saying beard. that before this movie, that wasn't necessarily the I, cliche. I, I, like it, it was. It was part of the art, but I feel like this one made it cinematic. Oh, okay. like kind of put it on camera for the first time. Okay, I see what you mean. Okay. Uh, let me look up the actor who played Jesus. Uh, I, I can do that. Keep talking uh, about the movie. Uh, Jesus was no, played by... Robert, Hed- Robert Henderson Bland. <laughs> His name was Bland. He was killed in World War II. Oh, that's uh, too bad. I mean, this film's made in 1912. They're all dead now. I know, but it's like it's a, it's a rough way to... He died in the Blitz. That's a rough Maybe. way to go, yeah. Uh, it's not explicitly like a Christmas movie. It just starts with Christmas. Because mm. it is... It's from the manger to the cross. I get it. Mm. And, and, it's and, in the title. And beyond, the resurrection is in there as well. Oh, okay. If you're familiar with the Jesus story. So, I would have saved that for the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> From the Major to the Cross 2, Resurrection. <laughs> the third one's called Armageddon. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. Jesus. Gets, fast forwards to, to the Book of Revelation. Oh, my God. Uh, it, it's not going to be terribly... Interesting or sophisticated. This is mm-hmm. like straight up middle of the road Christianity, the yeah. non-reflective kind of Christianity where we're just sort of meant mm. to absorb the beatific nature of Christ's divinity. Neat. Um, I've always liked to look at Christ as like sort of a political upstart, and uh, yeah, kind of, was yeah. That's why that's why people were I'm so much mad more at interested him. in Christ as philosopher <laughs> than just sort of as this beatific divine figure, uh, but there's peace to that. Mm. There's interest to that. And if you're just looking for a really straightforward mm. storybook version yeah. of the Jesus Christ story, yeah. 
do this rather than something from like a few decades later. Yeah, this is like this, this is, is like the, the platonic ideal. Yeah, of it's the, it's of like trying trying yeah. to actually like tell the story rather than take for granted that the audience is already converted. Okay, that's a good idea. Yeah. Because, watch this yeah. one and also watch yeah. Pier Paolo Pasolini's The Gospel According to St. Matthew because mm. that's the real that's like the Italian neorealist version of it yeah where uh, it's actually like trying to look at the more real version of the story yeah. when it's like the storybook version and this is like the more human version yeah yeah that's okay that's actually really cool okay. so, yeah. you know, so, I, so watch From the Manger to the Cross because I know it's not yeah. talked about a lot no uh, it's, it's uh, not uh, I've been studying movies like, for decades I don't like think I've ever heard of this Methodist church basements you know well I mean there you go that's something that's outside my sphere so yeah. I'm, I didn't or if, if I had heard of this I never knew about its significance so yeah. that's really amazing thank you for that that's really of course, cool yeah did, wow did, did, I, well I, I mean you today. recommended some things I've never heard of no it's just it's just really cool alright well that is it for the Iron List uh once again, uh, if you want just everything like all together, uh, here's Whitney's list of the best non-traditional Christmas movies. Uh, Batman Begins, L.A. Confidential, Tangerine, Elves, Silent Night, Deadly Night Four. Is that the initiation? Just, just initiation. Just initiation. Silent, Silent Night, Deadly Night Four: Colon Initiation. Black Christmas from 2019, Mixed Nuts, Prometheus, Silent Partner, and From the Manger to the Cross. My picks, Lady in the Lake, We're No Angels, Night Visitors, Elves, Santa's Sleigh, Deadly Games, a.k.a. Dial Code Santa Claus, Black Christmas 2019, It Happened One Christmas, Grumpy Cat's Worst Christmas Ever, and A Carol for Another Christmas. Uh, Whitney, do you have any like runners-up you wanted to mention? Uh, there were a couple I was thinking of mentioning. Um, let's see, I was... I don't think I need to talk about uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Yeah, I left it off my list because yeah, like, for the same we, reason. Everybody knows Eyes Wide Shut. I feel like at this shut. point it's almost, it's almost a Christmas it's, canon, yeah, you know? Exactly. Um, uh, a film that takes place like through Christmas, but not specifically on Christmas, is uh, Douglas Sirk's All That Heaven Allows. Okay. It has a lot of just really good uh, 1950s Christmas imagery in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the post uh, pulp fiction indie boom of like the late mm-hmm. 90s and early 2000s brought us Go, which is a Christmas movie. I always forget that's a Christmas movie. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <clears throat> uh, another one that's like was quickly hastened into Christmas canon was Carol. Yes. Uh, the, the lesbian romance. A good movie, yeah. Uh, what else, oh, what else did I mm. cross off? Oh, that's Elves. Oh, and Fanny and Alexander is another one that's like, uh, you know Fanny. You don't need me to recommend Fanny and Alexander to you. Uh, let's see. So, um, okay, some of the films I had on my list. Uh, the Man Who Came to Dinner with uh, Monty Woolley as an Alexander Wolcott type, like sort of famous celebrity who uh, breaks his leg in someone's house like at Christmas time and just refuses to leave their house and becomes mm. like a massive pain in the ass. Really funny. Monty Woolley's a classic. Uh, Hogfather. Oh, which yeah. Hogfather's pretty good. It's kind yeah. of a two-part miniseries. I left it off in a technicality, but... Uh, it's, it's a TV miniseries. It's a, yeah. It's, but, yeah, it's, it's an adaptation of Discworld, and um, it's great it's just it really works <laughs> even if you don't know the books like it, it's it's weird and you might need to like look up a few things that i've explained to you but it's such a treat yeah. um the best christmas pageant ever is a tv movie it's really short though so i 
kind of left it off on a technicality as well. Uh, but it's a really sweet adaptation of a really sweet book. Um, I'll Be Seeing You stars uh, Ginger Rogers and Joseph Cotton. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah I, 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 I only just discovered this movie. And um, it's got some things that haven't aged well from, like, you know, war stuff in the 1940s, uh, some attitudes. But uh, mostly it's great. Uh, he plays uh, a uh, soldier with PTSD who has been let uh, out of a mental institution for 10 days for Christmas. She plays a convicted murderer who has been let out of jail for 10 days for Christmas because of good behavior. They don't want the each other to know where they come from, and they spend the whole movie romancing each other and accidentally triggering their trauma, <laughs> like, <laughs> constantly. It's a weird balance of, like, emotionally intense and really sweet, huh. uh, and that's a kind of a neat film where people should see. Um, uh, Joyeux Noël uh, is a movie about uh, the, uh, the, the the Christmas uh, armistice in like World War One, oh, yeah, where yeah, the Germans yeah. and the French left their foxholes oh, and like, played sweet, soccer that's together. A sweet movie, yeah. yeah, it's it's kind of a downer at the end, but it's it's really great. I mean, the and, war continues. Yeah, it's really really great. Um, the uh, Seth Rogen uh, comedy uh, The Night Before is it's good, but then Michael Shannon is on screen. And it's great. <laughs> he elevates every scene in that movie. It's really, really awesome. Uh, Night of the Hunter is kind of a Christmas movie, but it's also so popular. Uh, right. I, I think you don't need to be told uh, how great that is. Um, Rocky Five ends at Christmas, and I have become a bit of a fan of Rocky Five. Why? <laughs> it, because I actually think it's doing some interesting things with the characters. All right. um, it's There's problems with it, but I think in, in retrospect, especially when you look at it in the context of some of the later Rocky movies where the things that it, like, it establishes that the other movies didn't, that lays the groundwork for films like Rocky, Balboa, and Creed, mm. I think time has been kind to it. And I think it deserves a bit of a reevaluation. Uh, let's see here. Ba, 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 ba. Um, I, there's nothing Christmassy about it, but apparently The Legend of Hell House takes place on Christmas, and that's one of my favorite Haunted House movies. So <laughs> giving, right. I left it out because there's really nothing Christmassy about it, but it it's really great. All right. I love it to pieces. Uh, the Melissa Joan Hart TV comedy Holiday in Handcuffs is bonkers. <laughs> like, you just, like, every decision is weird. Uh, and it's a lot of fun. Some people hate it, but I love it for all the reasons that they hate it. Uh, the TV movie A Very Brady Christmas surprisingly works. I think I saw that as a kid. Yeah, yeah it's, it's it was actually like, they did a couple of TV movie sequels to the Brady Bunch, and this was like the third. Uh, I like, all of the kids are grown up, and they're all miserable. They're on the verge of divorce. Oh, God. It's actually like, like darkness is like, looming on the doorstep of the Brady clan, but everything come, turns out okay for Christmas. It's surprisingly nice. Uh, and then uh, lastly, um, so Die Hard is probably a film you might have expected to be on a lot of lists uh, because it's because it's a Christmas movie, but it's an action movie. Mm. Uh, and nowadays, I think it's properly canonized. There have been a lot of Die Hard knockoffs because it's a formula that's easy to replicate. Uh, it, like Die Hard in a boat, Die Hard in a plane. Uh, Everly stars Selma Hayek, and it's Die Hard in one room. <laughs> and it surprisingly gets away with that. Uh, and it's really, really cool, and it is a Christmas movie. It takes place entirely on Christmas. Uh, she's amazing. Some of the elements of the story are darker than I think they need to be, uh, but it's pretty dang cool and deserves more credit than it gets, and it almost made my list. Probably the closest one of all the other ones. Um, 
And uh, yeah, that's the Iron List. Thank you everybody for listening. Uh, if you want to vote for future episodes of the Iron List, you can join our Patreon, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, your options, uh, the poll will be up shortly after this goes live for December. And we're jumping the gun a little bit, but it seemed like a fun thing to do. Uh, 2024 is upon us. We're doing our Christmas movies uh, in November, give you an opportunity to see them in December. And we're going to get a jump on our New Year's movies uh, in December. And no, one of the things on the list isn't the best New Year's Eve movies. Our options are mostly uh, anniversary related. So we would be doing either the best films of 2014, the best films of 2004, the best films of 1994, or the best films of 1984. Or, if none of those appeal, we can always continue our ongoing series uh, where we pick the best films that just happen to start with the same letter of the alphabet. Uh, we are up to the best films that start with the letter I. So that's an option as well if you don't want to do one of the years. Uh, thank you to all of our patrons for picking this one. This was a really, really fun list. Uh, you can always uh, send us an email, tell us your picks, any thoughts you have about our picks. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Uh, Whitney, what's our P.O. Box? Yeah, send us a physical letter to the Critically Acclaimed Network, P.O. Box 641565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yep, and we might read your letter in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Uh, also, we're on social media, at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Uh, and, um, yeah, happy holidays, everybody. Happy Thanksgiving, if you're listening to this before Thanksgiving. Happy other holidays, if you happen to be listening to this else times. That made sense. Anyway, that's the list. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. 